Podcast 019, interview with Ernie and Erica Wisner on Rocket Mass Heaters. Sponsored by my buddies at PantryParatus.com. Uh, they sell food preservation tools. Produce, prepare, preserve your own harvest. Your guys' stuff is like uh, your 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 account isn't just uh, Ernie or Erica. It's it's the combination of names. You, you guys like do everything together? Well, quite a lot. So I'm trying to okay, guys. I I I can barely hear you. Let me see. It. Does it help if I'm holding the microphone a little closer like this? Now I can hear you. Okay, cool. Let me see if the same thing works for Ernie. Does it work if I'm holding the microphone like this? Yes, it does, Ernie. Good. <laughs> Hi, P. Wheaton. <laughs> Ernie, Erica. <laughs> so the the first thing is, is of course, did you guys see my the two videos of my latest portable rocket mass heater? Yeah, with the the crazy bicycle transported huge thermal mass device that you build in like an hour. <laughs> yes, yes, that's the one. That's that, the one. So that is a publicity stunt that people have been asking us to do for probably about three years. Well, wait, which which parts the publicity stunt people have been asking you? You to should do? really build one of these on a trailer so you could show people, so you wouldn't have to go through all the annoying work of actually building it on site with people, so they know it was inside. <laughs> well, see. Bob Giordano, the guy that like you know is the mastermind or something over there at Free Cyclesville, because basically these guys they they uh, they cobble the people donate old bicycles that don't work and then they cobble the pieces together to make functioning bicycles and give them away. Hence Free Cycles. Well, anyway, so um, uh, he was big on the idea of, of all of this, and so he's got this idea of like, wouldn't it be cool? To basically take the design that I used there and put wheels on it or something, so that way you can just hook it up to a bike and you know pedal it around. You got your little portable heater, as opposed yeah. to what we did do, which is where we've got like the pieces, we drop it off and then we can put it all together. Right, your portable heater weighs how much? I I don't know. I didn't weigh it. I, I forgot to bring a scale. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, imagine. take it to a truck scale. <laughs> yeah, I, I I do think that trying to build that whole thing onto a trailer would be too heavy. But man, they've got some trailers there at Free Cycles that they've made. You know, because they've got this guy Joel there who's like this welding foo, and he he's he's making all kinds of wacky stuff out of welding things up. I believe they could make a trailer that could handle the weight. You know, you can make a trailer that will handle any weight. The question is, how many bicyclists do you have to lash to it to get it to go anywhere? And, and they've they've got some trailers where they've done exactly that, where they've lashed like seven or eight cyclists to one trailer to be able to pull it. Yeah, so you're going to go press gang people to move your portable device around? We, we just need like uh, some kind of a harness that they can't get out of until they get you where you're going. <laughs> I, I think I think that there's going to be a lot of heat thrown off by these guys just for hauling the damn thing around. <laughs> just harness that. <laughs> well, that that's that's bioenergy. There you go. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now now on to the most important part of this entire podcast. 
So, so now you guys have seen my designs, my, my variations. Now, now, Ernie, you are, from everything that I know, you are by far the leader in innovation and, and getting these things to sing. And so, um, uh, now, now you've seen my design. And now, now what I need is I need you to praise me, praise me, praise my designs. Okay, let's see. <laughs> what kind of praise would you like? Would you like constructive praise or would you like non-constructive praise? I, I, I want, well, let's start with the part where first you talk about, yes, it's awesome. And, and then you can lead into, um, things that, that could use improvement on. Although I already know of some things that could use improvement on. Oh, Paul, it's so awesome. All right, too fakey, too fakey. Make it seem sincere. <laughs> like I said before, when you start building it, it's a really good idea. Um, the making it portable is is great, but you know, there's a little pocket rocket out there that's not so much thermal mass, and you could build it in a five gallon can. It's still True. a good idea. <laughs> That's not a rocket mass heater. That's a, yeah. It's a, it's a rocket. It's like a bucket stove, you know? Actually being able to do mass in a space, but being able to take it out of the space again without having to turn it back into mud, I can see a, a lot of applications for that. Yeah, it is an awesome, it is an awesome development. The... Uh, and My development. Yes, your development is an awesome <laughs> now, that development. That sounds more sincere even. <laughs> it is an awesome development. I like the bike trailer thing. The setup time, that's not bad. Once you've got all the pieces there, and you know, even if it's just in the box, once you've got all the pieces there, that's not a bad setup time at all. I, I you know, I I think it, it could be record setting. Is it record setting by your standards? An hour and fifteen minutes is what it took us to build that. Uh, no. No. Oh, okay. All right. Wow. I told you Ernie well, has done several hundred more of these than I have. Yeah, yeah. So I know, so if I, so yesterday Eric and I visited a little bit, and Erica said that you've built over 700 rocket mass heaters. Yeah, well, between all the test beds and everything else, um, when somebody calls up with a question that I don't immediately have a good idea of the answer, I just build the stove and then look at it and test out the test out the question so um, if you read permies.com and you look at about half the questions on the basic stoves the way I answered them is by going out and building the stove and answering the question by what I was looking at oh okay okay so when people ask questions at Permies, you cobble something together that basically does what they're asking. Right. Well, yeah. Wow. If he hasn't seen it before, which at this point is becoming, you know, most of the time we've seen it, at least something like it. Well, now with with the design that I that I did, as far as I know, nobody else has done something where it's a um, rocks and sand in a wood box. No, nobody else has done that. I haven't done that, and. When you and I were talking about that design, um, my worry was that the sand would be too insulative. Right. And I changed my design based upon you saying that. Notice how where the ductwork goes, I've, I, instead of putting sand in there, I'm putting rocks in there. Right. 
So that way the air moves through it and it, instead of being insulative. Right, and and that is a great innovation. The um, thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. Um, the only things that I could see in that video, once it got started up, it looked like it did pretty good. The uh, there's there's a temper temperature differential thing that happens with these where you you need a lower temperature outside to make them run better if you're putting a lot of ducting in them shortening up the ducting you don't need so much of a temperature variation but you know for a 50 foot system or something like that um, they definitely burn better when it's cold outside and I couldn't see how cold it was there. And where are you, Montana? Montana. It started to snow at one point. <laughs> okay. Can I, can I say something a little bit more about that? Um, just the the temperature difference. There's a couple of places that that makes a difference in the system. The one that Ernie was talking about is the outside temperature. Um, these stoves sort of hit as kind of a sweet spot of getting good, just good enough draft during the cold season. Um, but they are, in order to save energy, in order to be very efficient on their fuel, um, they draft well when the temperature is below a certain point. You can build the stove for whatever your local temperatures are. But if you get to where it's warmer outdoors than it is inside in, with the stove, like in the summertime, then you probably won't get the same kind of draft. Um, it's just all about riding the gradients. So now, apparently, what you're mentioning now is a form of advanced modification on a rocket mass heater to get it to perform better in warmer climates. Is that what you just said? Yeah, essentially. Okay. Well, the other thing to notice is that the like the um, the portable rocket mass heater that you built. Um, I would expect it to work well in most times of the year, but I would, I would think if you were going to take it to festivals where you were demonstrating it in the summer, that you probably would want a shorter length of ducting so that you didn't end up showcasing that particular problem. Right. <clears throat> right. And and it, and it did turn out to be that, I mean, I, I, I've not heard you guys say this, but um, I know that when it comes to drier duct, that you know there's a limited amount you're supposed to run it, and then it's like for every 90 degree angle you're supposed to add five feet. And so I have heard you guys say that a six inch system, the maximum length of, of ducting, should be something like 45 feet. And we had in in just right turns, we had so many that it was adding like. 45 feet just in angles if you go with the five feet for every turn yeah and that's I don't I don't know so much about that calculation on on corners um, you can overcome that a little bit with the height of your heat riser so that the the its initial driver of the stove has enough force to overcome those those elbows but um, as a general rule, you can get about 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 maximum 45 feet on a six-inch system, 
you can take an 8-inch system to 50-some-odd feet. Can I interrupt for just a second? Because I can tell that somewhere on the Internet, someone is very confused. <laughs> you know, maybe what we ought to do is we ought to talk about a standard rocket mass heater, and then we ought to talk about my design awesomeness later. <laughs> yeah, I, I think it's sort of a general like bird's-eye view of what the heck are we talking about might be useful at this point. <laughs> okay. So, Go for it, Erica. All right. Lay it out for us. What the hell is a rocket mass heater? All right. Um, so... You may have heard of masonry heaters. Um, that's something that was developed in Europe to handle wood fuel shortages during um, the age of sail and the expansion of the European population. Um, I've heard of them referred to as Russian stoves. There are, there are a number of different varieties. Russian stove is one of them. There's the German. They have Kackelhofen. Um, there are Finnish and... Um, Dutch masonry heaters. There, there are a number of different. Basically, a lot of the crowned heads of Europe put out prizes for somebody who could come up with a more efficient way to get more heat out of less wood. And not surprisingly, a lot of the designs were very similar. They all involved building really big, massive masonry, building a small hot fire once or twice a day, and channeling the exhaust from that fire through the masonry so that it would keep the house warm even when the fire was out. Um, and there's a lot of different designs for how to do that. And there's a very rich tradition in Europe of expert master masons um, building these things and companies putting out custom parts for the hard, parts that are hard to do, like big, you know, bridging big gaps with special bricks or making little slots that you get a little bit of smoke going up to prime the chimney and so on. Um, there they're pretty amazing. The downside is that to get one installed in the U.S., you're looking at 30 to 100 grand usually. You can get a kit for under 10 grand. Um, but so, and there's also this whole environmental movement trying to not only improve the efficiency of, of benefit to people, but also kind of trying to clean up the waste stream a little bit. Um, looking at how can we do this without putting smoke out? How can we do this without leaving a whole bunch of... Um, smoke is basically unburned wood, so is charcoal. Um, if you're getting a lot of smoke out one end and a lot of charcoal out the other, you're really not getting the heat out of your fuel, and you're putting it out there. The charcoal's not so bad, but the smoke is a fairly dangerous thing to be putting out in the environment, and if you got a city, you got a lot of people breathing that, that's not so good. You know, let alone if any of the other critters out there would complain about it. Um, so there's a there's a whole movement really of people who are going out and trying to develop more efficient smokeless and devices that use less fuel. Um, so that's where that's where the rocket stove really came, got its start was from the um, folks that were looking for ways to do mostly third world. Um, cooking so that you wouldn't have, because in that case a lot of people were cooking on an open fire inside the house and you were getting indoor smoke. Um, so it was a real and present danger. Um, one of the statistics I saw was that some of these women who cooked over an open fire in their house would have the smoke inhalation equivalent of a, like a 400 pack a day cigarette habit. <laughs> Okay. Yeah, I mean, it, it really puts it in perspective as far as what people are used to in the U.S. 
Um, but so the, the rocket mass heater kind of puts together these two concepts. One is that you have a firebox that, so you put the wood down into this little tiny firebox. The fire burns sideways and then up into a little insulated chimney. Um, we call that the heat riser to distinguish it from an outer chimney that might also be taking the exhaust out of the house. But the heat riser is usually about four feet tall. Uh, some, it, you know, taller makes it work better for some things, but it's sometimes awkward for other reasons. Um, and then the exhaust, instead of just going straight up out of that internal heat riser, uh, it's trapped usually underneath the metal barrel. It's another example of pulling materials out of the waste stream and, and converting them to a longer useful life. Um, but occasionally people will do like a brick masonry bell instead of a barrel, and that works too. Um, but so that that's basically, you know, you just suck a bucket over your chimney. You want to make sure there's a gap so the smoke gets, you know, down into the bucket instead of just plugging the chimney. Um, but then at the bottom of that barrel or bell, you're capturing that exhaust and channeling it into a series of ducts that go through your masonry mass. Now, the benefit of that system is that uh, you can channel that exhaust horizontally. And so when we're talking about 45 feet or 20 feet or how long can you make the heat exchange ducting, uh, we're talking about a horizontal length that you can embed in a bench, a bed, uh, floor. Um, yeah, you can, you, can, you can run it vertically up through a wall or a chimney if you want to, if you just want a small footprint. But that gives you the third benefit. You've got clean burning. You've got stored heat in the masonry mass. But with a rocket mass heater, you also have something that costs a lot extra on those traditional masonry heaters, which is you've got direct body contact with the heated masonry. Um, typically, people will make a bench or a bed uh, or put it in the floor. So you basically have a radiant heated surface that you can put cushions on, you can sit on. They usually get up to oh, 80 to 120 degrees at the surface. Um, that's what people tend to build them for. And so it's really, it's like a full-body heating pad or a heated guest bed, um, which is pretty awesome, especially if you're in a cold climate and you need to get a little bit of the chill out of your bones in the winter. Um, after it's gone through that heat exchange masonry, um, the exhaust needs to get pumped out of the house. Um, and the combustion system <coughs> provides most of the force needed to do that. Some people will run the exhaust back up past the hot area to get it hot enough to go vertically out of the house. So if someone was building this where they used to have an existing wood stove, for example, and they didn't want to invest in new through-wall materials, putting it to the wood stove's chimney, um, that would be quite doable. And the other thing that, that uh, the inventor and some of the other folks that have worked on these really like to do at that point, the exhaust is, is fairly cold. Uh, it's maybe 70 to 90 degrees Fahrenheit if you've got a fairly long heat exchanger. Fairly long being anything over 30 or 40 feet. And so it doesn't have to rise. It, it's, that's that's kind of where you get that trade-off if the weather is, you know, if it's 50 degrees outside and your exhaust is only 70 degrees coming out of your bench. And it's got a lot of water and carbon dioxide in it from the combustion breakdown of the wood. Um, it's not necessarily going to want to rise. 
that's that's one of the weird things about these stoves is you can actually exhaust them out horizontally below the dew point for the water in your exhaust. So you have a little thing that looks like a dryer vent coming out the side of your house, and you've got fog pouring out of it. Um, every once in a while we built a stove that the exhaust was so cool it would actually flow downward like dry ice fog from that horizontal exhaust. Uh, so they're they're weird. They're, they're built to be highly efficient, but it's like the fire goes sideways and upside down. The exhaust goes down instead of up. Uh, they really, and this may be one of the most valuable things about them, they really get you thinking because they do the opposite of most of the things that we've learned about fire. And they they really put you on a learning curve to expand what you think about what fire can do and how it works. Especially for heating your home. Yeah. I, f- I find that when you try to compare a rocket mass heater to a conventional wood stove, I mean, it's very much an apples and oranges kind of thing. You know, one of them you want to peel off the skin before you eat it, and the other one you don't. And, uh, you know, th- th- there's like so many differences between the two and, and what they're like. <clears throat> I mean, they're similar in the fact that they're heating your home, but, boy, there's so many differences. It's, it's very hard to compare them. Well, the barrel or the bell is your is your immediate radiant heat, and a wood stove or an insert, you're either co- trying to collect that heat as air and blow it out around the stove, or you're depending on that radiant heat. Um, the the apples and oranges thing are, as we found. We tend to go to websites and look at the efficiency ratings of, of various stoves and go talk to people. And it's been kind of interesting finding out that when you when when somebody's selling a super efficient box stove, their super efficiency r- measurements are on things like fuel consumption. Does it burn up all the fuel? How how much heat does it put out? You know, does it put out a whole lot of heat for the amount of fuel that you put in? But they they may measure all of this stuff separately. So you get a fuel you get this fuel efficiency rating that you got this little tiny firebox, and it says it puts out X amount of heat. But what are you doing with the heat, and how much is going up the chimney? You know, in a, in a lot of ways, um, it is really comparing apples and oranges because this one is set up to extract maximum amount of heat out of it all, burn it as thoroughly as possible, and uh, be clean in the process. So, um, a lot of efficiency ratings in this. Well, <clears throat> you opened up the thing about efficiency and and this is something where i feel like when now i've gone out i i have not i I have not built nearly as many rocket mass heaters as you have and i've built only a few and um but i still go out because i'm arrogant and obnoxious enough that i will give a presentation on rocket mass heaters and i'll have a bunch of people come and they'll ask me questions and um and then plus of course there's the forums uh, I've got a bunch of videos, and, and, and when I post them to different forums and stuff like that, I get all these people coming out and saying, 
you know, my wood stove is 75% efficient, and you're claiming that you can um, heat a home with 10 times less wood, so it's not mathematically possible. There's. Can I speak to that? Well, of course, that's what I'm trying to fish for. All right. <laughs> um, we... There's actually a spot on one of the permies.com forums where a high school teacher asked us to figure the efficiency of a rocket mass heater. And I said, uh, using what formula? There's at least three formulas out there that I know of just for combustion devices that are appliances, and all of them are quite different from a rocket mass heater. Uh, just to put it in perspective, we looked at doing the EPA testing. There's a lab in Portland that does, um, like, certifies wood stove prototypes. And we were going to see if they would, if we built a rocket stove on site, could they run the test? How much would it cost? And they can't actually run the test for a wood stove on a rocket mass heater. There's a couple of reasons why a rocket mass heater isn't technically a wood stove in the first place, but the big problem for them was they're supposed to test three different burn rates for how much wood you're putting in, and you can't fit enough wood in a rocket mass heater to match what they test wood stoves at. Um, the people that we've talked to who have put a rocket mass heater in a small home after they had been heating it with a small wood stove, um, they had gone from three to five cords of wood per winter to less than a cord, in some cases less than half a cord. So it's just, it's it's incredibly less wood. Um, the measurement that this particular guy wanted was based on how much fuel is going in and the speed temperature of the exhaust is coming out. Okay. Um, to be fair, wood stoves are not allowed to exhaust below the dew point. You must maintain a certain amount of heat going out the chimney for the wood stove to be safe. Um, and that's, um, that's a rule that all the manufacturers have to work with, so they couldn't technically make a wood stove that put out exhaust at this low of a temperature. Um, so we... Okay, I can't hear what Ernie's saying. Our stove in the house is built to reflect that um, because we have to work in the fr- in the framework while getting it permitted. That's, that's another conversation for a little later. I think. When we built the one in the house, I have 100 degrees at the last elbow before we go up to the chimney. So it's at the very minimum that you're allowed with masonry heaters and... Uh, it might actually be a little bit colder yet from wood stoves, but it does do a vertical exhaust through a conventional. I can't hear you now, Erica. Uh, sorry, it's it is. Uh, it is. All right, stop mocking me. Um, <laughs> no, don't tell me what to do. <laughs> uh, we do have a factory-built wood stove type chimney um, on our stove, and the exhaust is going vertically out of that. Anyway, we. I always thought that was a bad idea to, to, to go up, to, to take your exhaust like way up. Like that's, that's something that doesn't go well with rocket mass heaters. You gotta build it with that in mind if you're gonna do that. The exhaust does need to be above about 90 degrees to, to be able to go up. Right. And, it and really that's where you get that line where you build the exhaust right next to the combustion chamber, the barrel. Yeah. So that way the barrel kinda heats it up on its way out. Yep. Yep. Which is like sad. Because <laughs> there goes all the heat. <laughs> but on the other hand, it's um it does eliminate 
like the the whole science of chimneys, putting your chimney out two feet above anything within ten feet uh, out your roof. Um, it does eliminate some problems that you might get if you have gusty winds or your prevailing wind comes from one direction most of the winter except when you get a really bad storm and then it comes from the opposite direction. If you're trying to put a sideways exhaust out of the house in those kinds of wind conditions, uh, it's very hard to make something that doesn't under certain conditions work as a scoop to, to push wind back up your walk and stuff. So the, the vertical chimney has some benefits as far as just keeping the smoke out of your house kind of thing. Um, but yeah, so we ran the math for that um, science teacher that, that wanted to see how they fit in a certain set of math. And there's a lot of errors and uncertainties. I basically just eyeballed how fast the fog was coming out <laughs> of our chimney and we used the you know, temperature that we knew we'd gotten when we were installing the stove. And um, so I wasn't, I wasn't sure how uncertain the results would be, but he ran the math again using the same numbers that I came up with. And he was coming up with something like a 94% to 98% using that particular model for efficiency. Like I said, there's three or four different ways to calculate the efficiency, whether it's the efficiency of combustion, the efficiency of how much heat is staying in your house, and so on. Basically, you can see how much wood you put in, and you can see that the exhaust goes out under 100 degrees Fahrenheit, and the rest of that heat is staying in your house, and it's being delivered as useful heat over a long period as warm surface temperatures rather than making... Which I think is is the easiest and simplest way to explain it, although a lot of people, it's like, they, they, they spend 10 times more energy not understanding than it takes to understand... And um, and so they have to hear it in different ways. But but basically, it seems to me like a, a conventional wood stove has heat leaving the chimney at 300 to 600 degrees. And then the rocket mass heater has heat leaving the exhaust port at about 80 to 100 degrees. Typically, yeah. Yeah. And so that's... So I'm, the rest it seems of pretty heat. obvious to me. And the other one's got heat pumping out of the house, and the other one doesn't. And it... Yeah, well, there's, there's where all your efficiency really is. The other thing you want to look at is what's pumping out at three to six hundred degrees on a wood stove, especially if you're trying to damp it down and get continuous heat all night. Oh, what's right, because then is smoke. You, you take your seventy-five percent efficient wood stove, and now it's operating at five percent efficiency. Yeah, and so you've got unburned wood. That's where your creosote comes from. Is the tars and other you know, kerosene, turpentine, all the stuff in the wood that's flammable that's not getting burned. And that's why wood stoves have to keep their chimneys above those temperatures because if it starts to get down into the range where creosote will condense on the chimney, then you're running a risk of a chimney fire. Um, so what's coming out of a rocket stove typically is very, very little smoke. Um, we see a very small amount of fine soot, usually from the newspaper that you use to start the fire. Uh, at the beginning of each burn session or from occasionally at the end of the fire you'll get a little bit of smoke out. The rest of the time you're putting out clear or white fog exhaust. You're putting out steam and CO2. So you're just, you're actually using the wood to produce heat. You're not using the wood to produce um, black gunk. Right. So that, and, and that was one of the things I attempted to demonstrate in this video that I put out um Yesterday 
was is that a, you know that is that a new one from the one that you put out a couple of days ago? The new, was it a couple of days ago I put this on? I thought it was yesterday. Yeah, yesterday I put it out yesterday. Okay. The, there's a video that I put out. Um, there's a video that somebody else put out a couple of days ago, and, and which was of this event. And then there was the video that I put out yesterday. So there's two videos of this rocket mass heater. Cool. And the one that I put out yesterday, the main focus is on uh, the exhaust. And so it's it's it uh, we we show pictures of like the fires burning, but you don't see anything coming out. And then uh, there was that woman Marcy who literally put her face right in the exhaust, and uh, she did not get her face burned off. I I did and, that the uh, first time I met one of these. I was like, it's supposed to be so clean. I I know when I stick my face in a campfire, I get you know makes my eyes sting. Not in the fire, obviously, but like in, you know, when the smoke blows. Above the fire. Or just when the smoke's blowing around. You can't sit anywhere around the campfire that the smoke doesn't blow in your face sometimes. Right. Um, And so I was like, well, I wasn't going to breathe it, because I'm a little bit smarter than that. But I did want to know if it would make my eyes sting. Right? Like, it's clear, but does that mean it's actually clean? Um, So, you know, that was one of the first things I did, was just stick my face, you know, I did the whole science classroom thing, wafting the, the stuff to dilute it first, and then I just stuck my face right in the exhaust pipe. And yeah, it, it doesn't make your eyes sting. It, you know, your skin might feel a little bit moist from the steam. Um, it's just phenomenal. It's, it's just really different from anything that you might see with another combustion device. And I saw that in the first video there was a very tiny glimpse of somebody doing that, putting their face in it. So I'm glad that you put another one out that shows. Yeah. The second one that's got this woman, Marcy, she's got her face right in it. And and she's like, uh, and so it's like, well, what do you what do you smell? And she's like breathing it in through her nose. And and she's saying, it, I can smell smoke, but it's not smoky. It's, you know, like you can smell like it's a fire. And this is the way I've described it far before. Like you can, it smells like somebody has a fire going far away, you know, but you've got your face right in it. So that, there's a, a chemical that sometimes doesn't break down if the fire's not like it's almost hot enough, but not quite. There's something that um, Ernie looked up in some of the smoke um, scientific literature. It's sort of a wet charcoal smell, like where if you're going through a forest clearing that was burned out a month ago and has been rained on since then. Um, and that's a, a 9-methyl ketone, which is one of the last things to break down. Um, but yeah, just just as a you know a heads up, I probably wouldn't recommend breathing the exhaust from this, even though it's not smoke. Um, you don't want to breathe combustion byproducts in general i i agree <clears throat> and of course you know if one did um it's still going to be far cleaner than the people in africa who are cooking with wood stoves without a chimney in their homes that we were talking about earlier where their home fills up with smoke and that's the way they cook all their meals yeah but the other so, thing uh they have a lot leakier houses than we do it's just something, that, you know, just because just it's magically cleaner doesn't necessarily mean you want to throw everything you know about fire safety out the window. True, true. I, I, I don't have any, I don't think anybody should pipe it into their home. I don't think anybody should, you know, be breathing it in with their face that close all the time. But I do think that it's, 
a, um, a powerful indicator. Now, we did have a guy come by once in a while who had like some kind of contraption that was a portable testing thing. I so want and one of those. It, what's that? I so want one of those. <laughs> well, this guy had one of those. Yeah, no, the and, uh, independent. He no longer wanted one. He had one. Uh, well, so, send him our way if he goes on a road trip. Uh, so he he uh, when we, we we test fired it the day before the Earth Day festivities, and um, depending on different stages of the burn, he was getting lots of different results. Um, and then he came by. Um, uh, at the Earth Day thing, and he, it was the same kind of thing. At different parts of the burn, we're getting different results. But we were having a variety of results. Um, I think, you know, because when the, the guy that first started the fire, he did not warm up the combustion chamber. He, like, you know, normally you, you light a little bit of fire and you throw it inside and it kind of warms up the heat riser. He did not do that. And so then I think we had a problem with competing chimneys. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Because he started the fire right in the wood feed first. Right. And you just and, you just take a candle or something and stick it down in there for a couple of minutes and, and warm up the heat riser. And or you can do what you do with right. like a, a piece of newspaper in there burning just to check the draft kind of thing. I, yeah, I just usually wad up a piece of paper, set it on fire, and <clears throat> throw it back in there underneath the heat riser. And I figured, you know, once it's burned up, it's we're good. We're good to go. But he didn't do that. And eventually it started to, you know, do the sideways burn and go. But I think that for the duration of the burn, we started having problems. And um, I think I think that probably 70% of the problems had to do with that. So we had kind of like this competing chimneys thing going on. Mm-hmm. And um, plus, I, I think that when we sealed it up, we didn't do as good a job as we could have. That, and so I think we had they, leaks. It's very easy to get that competing chimney thing if you've got any air leaks down in the, the base of the yeah. burn tunnel. So whereas on the previous day, we had a much better burn. Just like really. And it's like the, the heat riser was still wet. We had just built it and it was still wet. <laughs> and um, I'm, I'm, I'm just kind of thinking. But we also took the time to build it really well. We weren't we weren't trying to get it done in under an hour. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's why we had such a, an awesome burn with very little smoke back. Yeah. Um, whereas we were seeing a, a lot of smoke back at the, uh, or at least I should, by a lot, I mean like, it was like 5% of the time we had smoke back, which I think is a lot. I mean, it should <laughs> be a lot at of zero. It's in your house, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And so I was, I was feeling pretty, but a lot of it, we had, it was a very windy day too. Well, and that was, I think, messing with a lot of it. Well, there's, there's a couple of things. Number one, just like a lot of people don't remember learning how to use a wood stove or a fireplace um, unless they learned as an, as adults and there's a learning curve to operating to operating a rocket stove um, the little toss the paper down the burn tunnel uh, bit of learning goes a long way um, loading the wood in behind what's burning instead of putting it in front of it because yeah there's there's just some non-obvious things you don't want to stick the unburned wood in front of the other in front of the burning wood you want to put it behind it and it'll still catch on fire and it'll still burn and it moves forward into the burn cycle um 
Yeah, that's one of the things that actually helps these burn so clean is that you've got your hottest point, you've got your, your open flame in the front, and the wood behind that's heating up is producing all the, the you know, the pyrolytic gases, but they're being pre-mixed with the air that comes in through the wood and then pass through the open flame. If you have your flame underneath and your cold wood on top, like most people will build a fire in the fireplace, then you end up with a lot of wood distillates being shot out the ends of your cold wood on top that never really do catch on fire because the hottest point of the fire is below them. So we had problems. I mean, it was, <clears throat> but, but we did build the thing in an hour and 15 minutes, which I felt was really impressive until I talked to you guys, and it's like not so impressive. <laughs> I thought it was awesome impressive. I really want to hear um, what Ernie's story was about that happening faster. I'm <laughs> um, But the, we, we built it quickly, the, and, and I think that the, the fact that it's this radically different design and the idea that it's like, uh, there's there's no there's no cob it's cobless all all other rocket mass heaters I've ever heard of were made with cob well made with at least a little bit of cob like the greenhouse one that we did out uh, in Washington State um, that one uh, uh, had still had a little bit of cob but most of the stuff was buried in in soil just just um, again for the confused guy on the internet. Um, cob is a form of earthen masonry. If you're not used to earthen masonry, it's very similar to like a fire clay mortar, like a clay sand mortar. Um, and that's typically what's used for the mass for these stoves. It, it allows you to eliminate the purchase of a lot of custom cut brick parts. It's part of what saves you money on these. Well, hell, I'll make it even simpler. It's sand and clay and sometimes a little straw. Yep. That's that's pretty much it, and and the clay ain't fancy pants store bought clay. It's it's often I mean every project I've ever been in on the the clay that was used for the cob was just dug up somewhere. Yep, most of the projects you've been on were in the Pacific Northwest where we have a lot of clay soils. There are parts of eastern Oregon and Washington, Arizona, New Mexico, where you can actually dig ready mix out of the ground. Those, I mean, those areas where adobe is common, that's often the case. Where you've got Neat. clay and sand just in the ground in the right proportions and you can build masonry without, you know, with a shovel, basically. So the, the, the point I'm trying to make is that nearly all the installations that I've seen, are all, all the previous installations, Used at least a little bit of cob, like at least a bucket of cob, in order to to get it to all work out. Yep, and this design, and and this design used zero cob. And in fact, I I still think I've got ideas for how to improve it, where I think we could build it in under 15 minutes. And mm-hmm. it's I mean it's still it, it boils down to like just pour in some sand and pour in some some uh, some rocks and you're done. And uh, um, I, I'm, I, I've got a lot of excitement in that space, um, and uh, uh, I've got all kinds of ideas for improvement. But the big thing, okay, so so here's when when I go around, I talk about rocket mass heaters. Um, this I feel like this design demonstrates a few different. So now, forgive me. I know you guys are the experts, but I want to abuse this podcast time <laughs> to to express my position on some things. And that is that I get a lot of people that are like, oh, I don't like the cob. I don't, I don't like the look of the cob. So one of the things I demonstrated with this design was that it's possible to do, to have a rocket mass heater without the cob. 
You can you can use something other than Cobb. There's a different. Uh, 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 there's now an alternative Absolutely. design. And and granted, while I did this with two by sixes and two by fours, somebody else could could do some really fancy pants cabinetry here and make it look really nice and beautiful and and stuff like that. And that'll be nice to see someday. Maybe maybe there's a cabinet maker somewhere in Missoula that wants to show something off and. We can we can make a rocket mass heater that's like really nice, really fancy. Um, another thing is, as I heard from a lot of people, I can't have a rocket mass heater because I rent, and you know my landlord wouldn't go for it, or I can't build anything that permanent or anything like that. So so part of this design is to show something that is um, uh, very portable. So like uh, oh it's. You know, I'm I'm moving away from my rental unit now, and you could take your rocket mass heater with you. You know, it's it's just a, a bunch of components that can be loaded into a truck. You know, the 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 rocks and sand go in buckets. The wooden frame can go into the truck like a, any old bed, I suppose. And and then of course the 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 heat riser and the barrel. You know, they're they you can pick them up and carry them into the truck. So um and and the the, the build I uh, the time it took us to take apart version 1.2 and load it onto those bicycle trailers was um, about 45 minutes. And um, and then of course when we built version 1.3, which is what which is what's in the video, then then that took us an hour and 15 minutes. So the the portability. Uh, another thing was is that I've heard people talk about how um, the where they are the, the the wood floor would not be able to hold that much weight and i'm not sure if i quite fixed that when i when i had it with four ducts where there were all the turns in the ducts i felt like the amount of rocks and there were a lot less and there was like a lot of ducts and so it was therefore pretty light mm-hmm. um Relatively, and uh, um, but at the the uh, the last pass we made, we we eliminated the lower layer of ducts. So there was f- this this bench originally started off with four ducts running through it, and then and then later we modified it to be just two ducts. Did you so, notice um, the change in the exhaust temperature when you did that? You know, we were sitting there with one of them point and shoot thermometers mm-hmm. that's designed to to report exceptionally high temperatures. And um, we were getting all kinds of crazy readings. <laughs> Poor thing. And, and like, for example, the duck that came out of uh, the barrel was reading like 70. And then the, the duck that, that finally went out, it was reading 80. And it's like, how did it get hotter? <laughs> uh, so um, we were like going around measuring all kinds of stuff. And frankly, I was pretty confused about um, some of that. And I felt like it, it probably had a lot to do with that kind of thermometer. Yeah, I think they're designed that- to take surface temperatures rather than gas flow, so it might have been pretty confused if you're pointing it at the gas stream. Well, and I think also I wonder about it taking temperature of something that's got a reflective surface. Yeah. You know, and that that might have, if, if we painted it black, it might it might be more accurate. When we took that same thermometer and we went around the barrel uh-huh. um, then then we got results that seemed to be more like what you would expect so at the top we got up to like 850 right and, and then your hottest spot should have been just above the the uh, first ring as you move down the barrel 
like, oh, I, I don't remember that. I remember that we were getting like 350 and, and stuff like that. Right. But the hottest spot that we had was the middle of the barrel at the top. Oh, yeah. Getting, getting 850. Oh, yeah. But as far as that, that absolutely perfect there, what I keep, what I find is that about the, if you take a 55 gallon drum, it's divided into thirds. You flip it over about an inch above the ring, the first uh, groove ring thingy that they put on there. Uh huh. Um, about an inch above that is usually where it's hottest, as far as the side heat is. It's a little okay. cooler above that. It's hot in that one band, and then it gets cooler quickly from there on down the barrel. I would just say that the top third tends to be the hottest of the side of the barrel. I wouldn't get that specific because it's different on different stoves. Yeah, the um, the other thing is, no, those thermometers don't work well with reflective materials. Um, one of the reasons why I have my little magnetic magnetic stove thermometer thing calibrated is that I can just stick it to the ducting and look. Um, what I normally see as heats is about three, four hundred degrees for the first five feet coming out of the manifold. You know, coming out of the barrel into the into the thermal mass. This this is the duct itself inside of the masonry. Right, right. <clears throat> so I I had one of those, and it's in the video, and it, we were maxing it out. On the I, ducting or on the barrel? On the barrel, on the barrel, not on the ducting. Yeah, that, no, we didn't we didn't move it. We just left it on the middle of the barrel, but we should have moved it around. You're right. Yeah. No, that I, top spot. If you go to the stove to cook things, you can get that top. You can make a little red hot spot on the top, so you can boil water yeah. there. It gets very hot right there. But if you move that same metallic thermometer, like the magnetic one, down the side of the barrel, you'll see the different gradients. Yes, we should cool. have done that. Yeah. We should have done that. That's, a, that's something did. I want to <laughs> emphasize, actually, the, the way the gas cools as it moves down the barrel. Because you're sitting in the room and you're thinking that whole barrel is hot, right? That's its function is to get hot and make me hot, right? Right. Um. <laughs> <laughs> right. We're married. It's all right. He's allowed. Um, but what's happening from the gases perspective is they're coming up the heat riser at, you know, 1,800 degrees, 1,000 degrees, any, you know, somewhere in there as far as the, the efficiency of your burn. And they hit the top of that barrel. They kind of splash around, and then they start to move down the sides of that barrel. They're transferring that heat to the barrel, and the gases are cooling as they go down that barrel. And right. so it's that that's really the pump that drives this whole system is the, the heat rising up the middle and then ra rapidly cooling down the sides. I'm mentioning that only because we had some very intelligent friends who insulated their barrel thinking that if it was hotter, it would work better. And that's the <laughs> Yeah. No, they ended up with a system that was working fine when we left them, and then it wasn't working so good when we came back for a visit a year later. <laughs> that's unfortunate. Well, that makes it – I mean, it would be hot on the uh – Next to the barrel too, and so now you kind of got a competing chimneys thing again. Exactly. If the barrel stays, if the barrel and the heat riser reach equilibrium, which can happen if you insulate the barrel or if you don't insulate the heat riser, um, then there's no the gases just get trapped in the bell. They don't fall down the outside of the bell into your exhaust system. Um, so you need that temperature differential. You need to have that barrel exposing radiant heat. The barrels work very well, and the the book is designed around the idea that you've got a metal barrel there. If you do decide to do something like a brick 
bill, then you may need to adjust how far you can pump the gases because the brick's not going to transfer that heat quite as quickly. Now, the the video from two days ago, which was taken by Kelly Ware, mm-hmm. then um, uh, and in that video, she's, she recorded me telling a fellow was saying that he wanted the heat that was coming out of the barrel to, instead of being an instant heat, he wanted it to be like a long-term heat. Oh, like aren't you wasting heat by having it come out of the barrel? Yeah. Yeah, Compared and so what? I said... <laughs> so I, I said... Are you a wood stove? No. <laughs> but yes. So I said something like... Uh, well, if you wanted to, you could, you know, build a frame around the barrel and stack rocks in there. Yeah. And he said, and I, but, but it, you know, the problem is, the problem with that is, is that um, when you get down to the point that you're like, oh, you know what? I think, I think it's starting to get a little cool in here. I think I'm going to start a fire. Then, you know, um, the, what the barrel does is it gives you that short-term heat. Yeah. Well, and that's you know? again, that's what you run into so much, especially in our American market, is. You don't have a lot of people who are building a multi-generation home. You don't have a lot of people who are going to light a fire Saturday night so they can be warm Sunday afternoon. You have a lot of people who are going to walk in and when, you know, they're going to wait till they get uncomfortable to start doing something about the heat. And so that's for, especially for the American market, but I think for people as in general, this is, this is sort of a normal feature of being a human being is that, you know, Sometimes you don't get your routine handled as well as you might want to. That immediate radiant heat is a real benefit of these and that you don't generally get with the other masonry heaters. You do get it on a wood stove, but that's all you get from a wood stove. Right, right. So I uh, <clears throat> I think I've covered all of the things I was uh, attempting to um, demonstrate with my design variations there. Um, oh, there was one other thing that was something that I've never seen before. What's that? And that is that all of the other um, rocket mass heater designs I've seen, the burn tunnel and where the burn tunnel meets the heat riser, the heat riser would sit on top of um, a burn tunnel, basically a, a rocket mass heater core. Whereas I came up with a variation where I made the heat riser taller, much longer, and then I cut a hole into it, and then my burn tunnel was then like half the length and then would butt up next to that the heat riser as opposed to having the heat riser on top of the brick stacks. The only reason why the heat riser is on top of the brick stacks is it's easy to do that way. Right. This was this was a bigger hassle to make the heat riser, but I I think I believe based on what little I know about rocket mass heaters, I think that that this is actually improving the rockety effect or the the amount of pump that's going on by maybe fifteen percent. It the um, the original designs that like the rocket stoves that these came out of, a lot of times it would be an L shaped or J shaped set of pipes with you know, round pipes with elbows. Um, and the building of a square brick burn tunnel, I guess I should let Ernie tell this story because it's his story. Anyway, there was, a, there was an apprentice who was working with, with a couple of the rocket stove researchers who ran out of ducting and started, or, or stovepipe, and started using bricks. And they chewed him out, and then they tried it, and it worked better. Um, the thing that works better about the bricks is the... Um, 
the turbulence. It, it right. helps you get better mixing, and it also holds a little bit of heat in as far as keeping... Like, we can actually burn one log. Once our rock soap has, has been going for a while, we um, can drop a, a log in, and it'll burn on its own embers because of the residual heat from the bricks. So that's a factor as well. Um, but so if you if you were to make a smooth corner at the back where the burn tunnel meets the heat riser, you get faster airflow, but not as good mixing as far as, as the flame eating the rest of the smoke that might be in that area. It sounds like you're not having a problem with getting any smoke in your exhaust, so I think the modification you made is probably working just fine. Okay, so so basically I reinvented something that had been invented a long time ago. <laughs> Only I didn't know it. No, but I don't think you – I think you found a happy middle ground that had been unexplored. Oh, okay, because, yeah, I didn't make the entire J-tube out of ducting. It's only um, the last little bit. In fact, I probably only added to the whole system. Only I, I added only six inches of rounded duct, mm-hmm. and so. But I do feel like the fire is still going from a square into a cylindrical space, and and so I'm still getting that. Plus, I suppose one could carve out a piece of uh, the. Uh, ducting on the inside of the heat riser and and turn up a little tab like even a quarter of an inch and that would probably add some agitation uh it sounds like like the turbulator that ernie and donkey were playing with a while back they put veins on it to make it spiral up the the heat riser kind of like rifling and how'd that go it was exciting and a, and a disaster? Oh, no, it works really, really well. Um, and looking down, at you can remove your eyebrows efficiently. Um, <laughs> the, uh, the only reason why we don't build systems with that in there is because it causes a cleaning problem. You get ash builds up on the top of those veins, and then, you know, you, basically what it does is it makes a place to, to build up ash. and That's not real good. Tries to take your hand off when you go to clean it too. Well, that too. Um, so, donkey and I don't tend to put them in, but it's something that can be done. That putting that vein where the flame path changes direction up into the heat riser. Um, we've done that. It works out pretty well. Putting something that's going to break it up if you. That's uh, going to break up the the flame profile and put it up the you know so it's it's more randomized going up the heat riser. The heat riser organizes it again, slams it into the bottom of the barrel. Um, you wind up increasing your speed because your combustion happens in the heat riser instead of or a lot of your combustion happens in the heat riser and then happens again in the barrel. And then it cools quickly. Um, so it does. It tends to increase velocity. But there's a there's a really important happy medium you got to hit there. That's kind of hard to hit. It's much easier to hit with a with a brick stack. So you know, there's a lot of ways you can go with a with a rocket stove. What we're trying to do is, it, you know, at least in our work is do the research 
to find the best possible way that's going to be the, the most stable that's going to work for everybody. That's kind of hard to do, so we wind up doing site-specific designs just off the basic rocket stove um, to make them work for the area. Right. I, I um. I don't know that there is any such thing as the best, but we are definitely working on a the most reliable model that you can that you would typically use if you're trying to heat your home with this. Um, the the neat thing about rocket mass heaters, as far as the researchers are concerned, it's a it's a tinkerer's stove. You can experiment with it. You can um, if you work with them for a while, you can make them jump up and do tricks. People have done things like um, small scale smelters or um, Kilns, wood kilns, um, using them for various different industrial applications. Um, so there's no limit to what you could do. The question is, if for somebody, yeah, for somebody that's not familiar with them, what's going to actually work for you versus turning into a you know wood-eating dragon in your house that you get frustrated about? Right. So trying to come up with something where <laughs> the, the, the common joke can build something that's going to be really great. Much less smoke back, um, you know, less smoke coming out. Just, just, you know, if they just follow the simple recipe, they'll have awesomeness. And then, of course, there's going to be, um, you know, 90% of the people out there that want to futz with it. Yeah. <laughs> they want to, well, right now, now I want it to do this other thing. Yeah, right now the people who are building these, uh, it's it's also pretty common, incidentally, with people who do hobby boat building. Like they they want to build a boat, but they don't. They got a plan for a sweet little boat, but they decide they want to make the sides higher so that it's you know feels safer when they're sitting in the water. And of course, that makes it more top heavy. <laughs> it's just like if you don't understand the complexities of the fluid dynamics, it's a really good idea to do one according to a plan that already worked before you start changing anything and change right. one thing and, and, at a time. I know that Ernie is really frustrated by some of the people asking questions out at permies.com. Um, I made it out of blue fuzzy dice. Would it still work? <laughs> yeah. I, th- I love the one where it's like they're going to make the uh, the heat riser be horizontal. <laughs> it's like yeah, there's somebody who's really not getting it there. <laughs> our, our generic advice on that sort of situation has become um, make a test model in your backyard and see what happens. And see what because, there is. Okay. If you don't understand those things about fire, us telling you how we do a rocket stove isn't where you need to start. You need to start with actually lighting a fire in a safe place and seeing what happens and seeing what you can do with it. Right. And and I think it's important to point out that the that the book is really cheap. And and yeah. uh, it's a tiny little book. It's like it doesn't take a whole lot of time to read. It's actually and fun to read. I keep rereading it and realizing, hey, this is kind of entertaining. Uh, yeah, yeah. So um, it's it it does seem like I don't know why these people are going out and building rocket mass heaters and they haven't bothered to get the book. It's it's got some important information in there to yeah. to kind of get going. Yeah, um, and you can get it PDF as well as as hard copy for even cheaper. So yeah, what is it like thirteen bucks? Is that right? Yeah, it's it's around thirteen bucks. The and I think the book is eighteen. And the other thing you can do is check it out from your library. Yeah, there you go. You know, yeah, <laughs> it's just. Just go down the library, and, right. and it, it takes you a weekend to build one of these things. The library lets you keep the book for three weeks. There you go. <laughs> you could you could build a dozen of them. <laughs> yeah, um, and 
I guess one of the things I'd like to address is the uh, um, the the uh, <laughs> sorry, just lost. I my, could bring up some more topics. Yeah, I, yeah, I yeah. I just lost my train of thought there for a minute. All right. I, well, let's talk about a pocket rocket. Okay. Let's talk about what is a pocket rocket and how it is better than and how it is less than a rocket mass heater. Oh, let's see. It's. Can I describe a pocket rocket first? All right. Let's let Erica do her English English translations. I I like to give people at least sort of a visual of what's going on. Um, So a pocket rocket is basically kind of a proof of concept of this whole thing. You can actually get the fire to burn down. Um, You take, say, a metal five-gallon bucket. You cut a couple of holes in the lid. Um, In one of those holes, you shove, oh, say, a a very short piece of six-inch stovepipe. You push it down until the top of it's just at the lid, and the bottom it's a couple of inches above the bottom of the bucket. On the other hole, you set up a taller piece of, of uh, stovepipe. You can use four or five or six inch, doesn't matter a whole lot. And the idea is you want it to be, oh, the total height be about three times the height of the bucket. So maybe the stovepipe should be a couple of times the height of the bucket, maybe four to six feet of stovepipe there. You can get five foot sections, that should work pretty well. Um, you light a little fire in the bucket and fire being what it is, it goes for the easy way out. It tries to go up the tall chimney. Um, You know, it goes up to the top of the bucket and hits the lid, and as long as the chimney doesn't poke down too far through the lid, it finds the chimney real easily. Um, You start to get this nice hot chimney going. Now it's drawing air in through the other hole that you've made with the two that pokes down further into the bucket. Um, So that's where you start loading your kindling and your wood, and you fill that tube up. Um, and the fire in the bottom of the bucket starts eating the bottom of the wood where it pokes out of the tube. You keep that thing full so that, that it has to draw air down through all the wood, um, and it just keeps burning the bottom two inches of that wood and sending the smoke up the other chimney. Um, and it tends to burn pretty clean. If you have a good rich fuel source, you sometimes will have a little pointy arrow of flame coming out the top of your chimney. Um, but it does a couple of neat things. One is it shows you that you can actually make fire burn sideways and upside down. Um, and another is that it tends to get hottest right around the bottom of the bucket. That's where your coals are. So it, unlike a burn barrel where you tend to have a big smoky fire coming out the top and a lot of ash in the bottom, this will tend to stay hot a couple inches above the bottom, which makes it a really neat thing if you got a, I don't know, like you're doing a little teepee campsite or something like that. Um, or you're just, if you're doing a burn barrel for like an entertainment fire for a party, um, that heat down at the bottom keeps your toes warm. It's pretty nice. From my point of view, there, you know, it, it pocket rockets show you the J-tube system and how a rocket stove, you know, how the J-tube and heat riser work. Better? It's better for immediate heat. It's good in a small place. I mean, if you've got an old fireplace that, that you know, has the bricks around and all of that, you don't want to be cleaning ashes out of it, you can just plumb a pocket rocket right into it and light it up. 
and you make it so the lid comes off and you can take the bucket out with his little handle and dump the ashes out. That's the other thing I've seen people do with them is like a little, like if you do several small sh- sections of stovepipe, you can actually pack the whole thing in the bucket with the kindling. And so you can have it just, you know, people in the Midwest where they might get stuck in a snowstorm with their car or something like that, have it in the back of the car so that you have an option before you start burning your tires. <laughs> wow, that sounds like a perk. <laughs> yeah. Um, they're really fun. They're really efficient little stoves. They, they're smoky. As far as putting out radiant heat, they're great. Um, the, the tall chimney that you just stuck on a bucket will tend to be a little bit tippy. And so if you were going to try to put them in a space, it might be smart to have some guy wires or brackets or something that would keep that from falling over and starting to spew hot. So now I kind of think of the, the pocket rocket as being moderately comparable to a conventional wood stove. It is. It's it's moderately comparable. So um, I mean, there's there's other ups and downs and ins and outs and things like that. But but for the most part, it's like uh, the um, the efficiency is going to be kind of similar. It's going to be about as clean, and it's going to be you know. But it's on, on the on the upside. I mean, like all the parts for it was probably less than twenty bucks. Yeah, you you and you can get the parts in the dump, but. If you wanted to pay for them all new, especially if you're going to use actual stovepipe, you could probably spend 50 bucks on like a really shiny new barrel that you didn't have to burn the paint off of and really shiny new black or stainless stovepipe, three little two-foot sections. Um, it, it would, you'd have to work at it to spend more than a hundred bucks on, on that. Whereas you'd have to really scour Craigslist to find a wood stove for less than a hundred. Right. But on the so, other hand, your wood stove is probably going to last longer than a bucket. Well, and this is also, um, um, it's, it's way cheaper. Well, okay, yeah, it's going to last longer. Um, oh. And it's something you can cobble together out of junk. Yeah, really. like Ernie was pointing out, you can get, a, he's just got a can of tomato sauce here, but like a, those square cans that olive oil comes in, things like that, you don't need stovepipe for all those parts if you're just going to do a little temp- temporary demonstration piece to prove to yourself how it works. You know, I saw somebody on Premies, they posted a picture of something that they made where they made like a little miniature, uh, it looked like a miniature uh, uh, pocket rocket, only it was made with a coffee can, yep. and uh, they put it inside their wood stove, yep. and they felt like they were getting more heat out of that than by building a much bigger fire, which I thought was kind of weird because it's kind of like, but I don't know, maybe they're burning the wood slower. I'm not sure. They're just but getting, they do- they're getting the radiant heat out of it faster. And pocket rockets, um, if you look at those soapstone stoves, those really expensive guys that keep repiping all the smoke back through the, through the stove and they try to get out real clean, um, a little pocket rocket actually pumps out comparable heat to one of those things. Part of, what, huh. part of what's yeah. going on is because of the way that you've got your wood and arranged and the, the shapes of the voids in there, um, more of the flame path is actually in the device. Like you've got the fire going from the down, you know, it's, it's starting at the coals on the ends of those sticks, and it's kind of swirling around in the bucket before it finds the chimney coming out. Um, so the, that's, that's your J shape is the in going down and then swirling around and then coming up. 
the long stem, okay. the, the stem of the jay, and that you basically have um, pulled more of your flame path down where your cold parts are, like your toes. So you're actually okay. feeling more of the heat coming off of that fire, and it's. I, I think they are slightly more efficient on wood than than a lot of the box stoves I've seen, just because um, just because of that reason. That is a good point. That is a good point. You know, as long as we're doing some comparative analysis, <clears throat> I want to kind of I want to quickly draw emphasis on how um, people that have converted from a conventional stove to a rocket mass heater. Um, have reported a, a reduction of uh, wood required to, to warm their home by 80% to 90%. So an 80 to 90% reduction in wood used to get the same amount of comfort. That sounds and right. Then, it's like about a fifth to a tenth of the wood. That's I mean, That's been consistent right. for everybody who's done one-to-one. They've taken out. And now these aren't necessarily a top-of-the-line modern efficient wood stove that they were using. Some of them would have been 10, 20, maybe even 30 years old. Right, but and then and then let's work into the mix, um, the uh, masonry heater. How does the masonry heater compare to these other two, as far as like the amount of wood needed to heat your home? We actually have a comparison of that, and it's very interesting. A friend of ours has a masonry heater in his house, and he's very interested in rocket stoves. Um, so he spent a lot of money to get this thing in. He lights it up, but what did he say? He he loads it with about half a wheelbarrow full of wood. Okay, tight stack, wow. half a wheelbarrow full of wood. Lights it up. It puts off a little bit of radiant heat, mostly out the door, but his benefit of heat happens the next day. Um, if I burned a half a wheelbarrow full of wood in our stove, it would take me about a week. You know? <laughs> um, maybe maybe we could burn it in two or three days if we were really working and keeping it running the whole time and took all the cushions off and let it just get super, super hot. But you guys would get cooked out that way using that much yeah, wood. Yeah, that would, that would be like for a sauna or something. Or if it was super cold outside, honestly, we have a small leaky house that has like the least efficient floor plan ever as far as having lots of different arms that stick out and lose heat and all the windows pointing north. And so if it, you know, it, it usually stays in the 30s and 40s here in the winter, but if it drops down into the negative, you know, teens or, or lower, we do tend to run it a little bit longer. And in that case, our house is just efficiently losing the heat for us. Yeah, and the fact that our little six-inch system that we have here was never intended to be the full heating system for the house. Um, it's only intended to be part of it, and we heat, we can heat the whole house with the stove. That's pretty good. Um, as far as the efficiency between masonry heaters and this one, um, masonry heaters are batch burns, and... Um, a half a wheel bar- barrel full of wood, well stacked. Like Erica said, on normal heating for us would probably take us a week to burn it. And to be, you know, this this guy does have a much larger house, and uh, 
so you you know if you're running that through a a larger rocket stove that would be comparable to what he'd need for that house. It might be a couple of days worth of wood. Um, the thing I notice about masonry heaters, um, there's two things I notice just just based on those little efficiency formulas. One is that they do put out some smoke. It is a clean fire, but it's not as clean as a rocket stove, so you are losing some of the efficiency of that big batch of wood. And the other thing, thing that I notice is that they do, ex- their exhaust temperatures often higher than the rocket stoves. So they, they can make it down at the same temperature as a relatively hot exhaust rocket stove, uh, but typically they're going to be up in the two to 300 degree range, and a rocket stove is typically going to be down more in the 100 degree range. Um, so you're looking at, in terms of absolute temperature, half again as hot <laughs> they're putting out. Um, so just just based on that math, um, I would say that the rocket stove is probably a little bit more efficient. Now, earlier you mentioned um, the price tag of a masonry heater being starting at like less than $10,000. That's, and I believe you a, said that's for a kit where you get all the pre-cut parts and and the the prefab core, and you do all the work yourself, matching the numbers on the bricks up to the diagram. Okay, and uh, and then you went up to you, you said I believe if I remember correctly you said up to like thirty thousand dollars. I would it say if, like you, that if was... you were going to have somebody come in and install one, that's kind of what you should be looking at. Is is definitely 30, tens 30. of thousands of dollars and. It's not unusual to spend a hundred grand or more if you want something that's got, say, a particular color of stone that really looks good in your house and has, you know, a, a bake oven included as well as the the nice fire viewing window and all that kind of stuff. Um, these are a multi generation investment. They are they're gorgeous. They're very efficient compared to most of what's out there currently on the market, and. Um, they definitely are going to do a lot for the resale value of your mansion, but they're not something that is affordable to the vast majority of the people who I know who are heating with wood. Now, um, you know, and part of what you just said was is, is that <clears throat> well, now let me let me finish talking about price real quick, and that is that I used to say the price started at ten thousand dollars. Now you just mentioned something where a person could do it themselves and they would get a kit, and it would be less than ten thousand dollars. And I, I uh, just uh, in the last couple of months, somebody said to me that there there have been some people out there that have built their own rocket mass heater without the kit. They did it all themselves, and they did it for about six thousand dollars. Masonry heater or rocket mass heater? Masonry heater. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if Masonry you know what you're doing, um, right, right, you can put one together with mostly basic brick and a few parts that you might have to custom cast out a refractory. Um. Yeah, and and so if you're literally doing all the work yourself, including getting the foundation set up, getting all of the the channels laid out correctly so that it's going to work for you, um, yeah, no, you can you can build your own masonry for whatever you want to spend on parts. What's the cheapest you've ever heard of anybody building a masonry heater? Um, we we're probably not the best people to ask is. Is we haven't um, 
that's not really the business that we're in. Okay. Well, so now the, the cheapest I've ever heard of is $5,000, and that's where they are doing it themselves. And you're right. I mean, it's, there's a lot more to it than a rocket mass heater because it's it's just, well, it's massive. Well, and it's, um, it's um, you got to really like three-dimensional Tetris. <laughs> be I able to make that. channels as you're going up and be able to remember how they're going to connect to each other and things like that. Now, if for you comparison, follow a plan and you've, you've got some masonry experience, you could probably pull it off, but it takes a, a high degree of intelligence and a fair amount of experience. In comparison, what's the most expensive rocket mass heater you've ever heard of being installed? So this, is, this would include the price of having somebody install it. So you, you know, you've got your thirty thousand um, dollar masonry heater at, at the top end. Um, and, and clearly, you can go beyond thirty thousand dollars, but you know, for that level, I mean. So, what's what's the most expensive rocket mass here you've ever heard of being installed, including the the cost of having somebody come and install it? Um, we can't really answer that. Um, <laughs> okay. The, uh, well, granted, people typically aren't traveling this path. No, they're not, and and we don't have a lot of examples. Um, I, I don't typically see contractors building these for people. Um, we have somebody who's ready to do it in Portland once we get the building code approved, and we talked to one guy who did it for somebody in Europe, but it was the first time he'd ever built one, and I don't know that that, that anecdote would be a very good example for how you'd want to do that if you want this is this is basically a do-it-yourselfer stove. So, yeah. as far as how much money somebody spent to build it yourself, if we just want to compare it to the kits and, and do-it-yourself version, okay. um, I would say a, a couple of thousand might be kind of the high end if you're getting triple wall and double wall stove pipe all new and um, fire brick and things like that. Um, Buying everything new and having somebody build it in your home. No, not having somebody build it in your home. Just buying everything new and building it yourself. Um, you could easily spend several thousand dollars on somebody's time coming in to help you build it. Okay. Um, and I don't see again. I don't know that I've seen somebody install one where they actually started by doing a full-scale slab foundation. Usually they're built on existing slabs or just a little bit of reinforcement of a wood floor or something like that. Um, so it, it's I, this isn't something that's really out on the open market as a thing you can buy at the moment. So right. This is a well. Now let's talk about the other end of the scale. I've it seems to me like I've heard of several people that would you know watch for free docked free you know materials and then they would cobble together their free materials over time. And then they, um, basically it sounded to me like they were able to build it for about 20 bucks. A, a rocket mass heater, not a, not a pocket rocket, but a full-fledged rocket mass heater. And they made it out of cob. And, and the, the total cost of all the materials was about 20 bucks. Yeah, that's usually the cost of the perlite. There you go. Um, so, uh, um, yeah, cause it's, it's true, you can't, Find somebody's like, oh, I've got extra perlite. You want some? <laughs> That's assuming you don't count the cost of the gas to go around and get things like maybe locally available river sand or locally available 
bricks or th- those kinds of things. Right. You'd, realistically, especially if you're going through a combustible ceiling or wall, um, the, the a normal price that people would expect to to put into this would probably be around five hundred to a thousand dollars. You can easily do it for less than a hundred, but you'd have to spend longer keeping an eye on Craigslist and doing a lot more, you know, picking things up on the junk market. Right. I I think that the thing that we put together that's in that video, I would imagine that all the bits were less than two hundred bucks. Oh yeah, you, you yeah. can buy if you use standard ducting, all right, that you that people would put in there um, for their central heating unit. If you use standard ducting. Um, and all of that, you can get. I mean, we go down to we go down to a rebuilding center every so often and pick up all their ducting, and it usually costs us about thirty dollars to get enough ducting to do an entire, actually a couple of entire stoves. Um, it's the through walls. It's it's the the stainless steel pipe. It's it's the triple wall metal bestest stuff that costs so much money. It's not. Um, it's not the regular the regular things. If you're building this off the grid, and you do like we did, where we put out a wanted thing for bricks, and you know, next day we had two pickup loads full of bricks dumped on our front lawn. Um, <laughs> the. Uh, a, you can people will deliver you the stuff you need. You, but you got you know if you're talking about free with the gas and and everything included, if you're building this thing off grid, yeah, about twenty bucks. Um, you can manufacture the pipe yourself. You can do castable refractory. Um, there's a lot of ways to do it, but. You know, for most people who are going to go out and buy a handful of stovepipe, they're going to buy a bunch of elbows. You know, they've got to put it through the ceiling or the wall, so you need triple wall metal bestest for that can that section. And then you have, you know, the little hood thing to make it look tidy, and the other end to make the box that you need to make sure that it, you've got the right spacing. Um, we still have to build it to fireplace code in order to do this. As far as the through walls go, and that's expensive. Um, that's that's not a cost you'd have if you're building it through a cob wall, and that's what these were originally right. come up with was, was for the the cob earthen building movement. Right. Um, so that that through wall really is the most expensive part of the build. So um, I just want <clears throat> to say real quick, this part of our program brought to you by Home Resource. This is our little outfit in Missoula that has the reused stuff where you can go down and you can get ducked for cheap and and two by fours for cheap and and all kinds of bits and bobs and parts of all kinds of things for cheap and uh, when I say brought to you by I mean they have no idea I'm saying this <laughs> but but maybe they'll give me free stuff if I say it <laughs> hey if I say that will rebuilding center give me free stuff go ahead <laughs> Try it. Make a plug. <laughs> yeah, Rebuilding Center here in Portland does the same thing as those home resource centers. They sell, you know, reused things, so you can get ducting and two by fours and granite and all that jazz. 
So now you just have to point out that 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 this podcast mentions them, and maybe you'll get free stuff. Possibly. I would also <laughs> say, possible. if you're looking to get free stuff as far as making your um, rocket mass heater, um, or you're looking to buy scrap metal rather than new parts, uh, it's good to know that that it is not legal to resell stovepipe as stovepipe, and I. Not sure about ducting. Um, I don't know. Yeah. I, so it's it's just something if you're looking if you're looking to see if somebody has some they can get you. Um, be well, aware that they I will think, not be allowed to sell it to you if you're talking about building a stove with it. Um, well, and that leads us into the stuff about um, getting about building codes mm-hmm. and the work that you guys have done in that space. Although, first thing I you know for Missoula. I know I, I talked to the air quality guy, and I haven't talked to like building code people or whatever. But but my understanding is that if you want to build one of these things outside anywhere in Missoula County, you can do that. And um, I also know that in Ravalli County, like they have no building codes at all. So I imagine you can build it all you want in Ravalli County. But I know that in Missoula, if you're going to build it outside anywhere, um, but if you're going to build one inside, it's totally cool on the north side of Missoula County. And I have no idea where the line is drawn to be north and south. Um, but on the north side of Missoula County, you can you can build a rocket mass heater indoors, and no one gives a shit. Um, I imagine that um, when it comes to all these little parts and what you can resell this for and resell that for, I imagine that on the north side of Missoula County that nobody cares. But um, I know that Missoula County now has, like as in the last few years, they have building codes. And I don't know. Maybe somebody does care. I don't. I don't know that. Um, there's a. We've been working on putting together a building code for rocket mass heaters for the city of Portland, because there are quite a few people in this area that care uh, what people do, and uh, it's not just whether you build something. It's also the emissions that they're worried about. Um, now, as of a few years ago, the EPA. Standards for that, you know, like your wood stove needs to be certified that it meets those standards. They only apply to wood stoves by definition being up to about 900 kilograms, which is what is it? It's like 1,800 and some odd pounds. Um, and your typical rocket mass heater, even before you go very far into the heat exchanger, is going to be well over that. Um, so they are they are not a wood stove. They are an as far as I know, they're an unregulated combustion device, but the problem is if you've got a building inspector, he needs to see a letter from the EPA telling him that the EPA doesn't want anything to do with your device and doesn't care how you build it before he's allowed to sign off that it's, not, that it's you know, like, what's it called? A letter of exemption. Um, it's very hard to get somebody from the EPA to write you a letter saying that it's not their business to regulate your wood-burning device. There's not Yuck. really there's not really anybody whose job it is to do that, as far as we can tell. Um, and the standards for testing wood stoves involve testing one in ten thousand to one in a hundred thousand of a given model. Um, so the, the standards are really written for a different type of device. So yeah, so um, we, like Ernie was saying earlier, we put our little rocket mass feeder in this apartment. Um, with the landlady's collaboration as a demonstration exercise to see if we could get a permit from the city for something that theoretically should only require a mechanical permit for the weight. Um, 
and the landlady went and got a wood stove slash mechanical permit, and it turned out that wasn't what we needed. The inspector who came, the poor guy, had no idea what to inspect it for. Uh, thought it was cool. <laughs> you know? um, but so he, he had his supervisor, and his supervisor brought the EPA inspector, who's like in charge of writing nasty notes to people about smoke for five counties. And they thought it was cool, and they had no idea what to inspect it for. Um, but they hung around for all three of them, actually, for almost an hour, and then the EPA inspector stayed longer and just telling us horror stories about what other people are doing and how glad he is that we aren't doing that. Uh, <laughs> we ended up giving up him one of our flyers for the workshop because he sounded like he, he really had some struggles with educating people about fire. But but anyway, they all liked it. Um, and they kept asking us these interesting questions like, um, is it your only source of heat? Now, we're thinking... We know that the building code says you need a, a device that can raise the farthest wall three feet from the floor up to 68 degrees. And so we're saying, no, no, we're, our house is totally legal. We have a furnace. And he's saying, is it your own, you know, do you cook on it? Is this how you cook? Oh, no, we have a, you know, we have a, a up-to-code kitchen over there with an electric stove. Well, it turns out these are exemptions to the EPA rules that if your wood-burning device is your only way to heat or your only way to cook, or it's an antique that you can be exempted from things like burn bans and um, sometimes from the requirement to remove a, a device that's not up to the current EPA code. The rocket mass heater knocks the current EPA code out of the water as far as emissions, but we'd need to pay 5000 bucks to get that tested to prove it. Right. So Yuck. we had this marvelous conversation with the EPA inspector, and he hangs out with us for an hour, and at the end of the visit... He's looking at the thing. He's saying, well, it's an old design, right? I mean, maybe you could get it under the antique exemption because it's, <laughs> a, you know, it's a real old-fashioned concept, this masonry. Yeah. We just built <laughs> we it last year. We filed the permit, right? Yeah. Um, we designed it on And he's two. just looking at it, and he's like, well, dirt's old. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like, they really want it to be okay for us to do this without having to go through creating a whole new category of permit. But... Um, in our particular case, we've kind of screwed ourselves out of all those different exemptions. So what we want to do is have it be a test case for how do you actually get one permitted? How do you actually do this legally with the city's approval so that you can sell it with the house and have it improve your home's value and not get you in trouble with your insurance company or anything else? In our case, we probably could have gotten exemptions if we had, you know, actually removed the furnace or disabled it which because we don't use it anymore. But... Um, but <coughs> we're pretty dense sometimes. Yeah. Well, and we want—we actually want to establish a precedent where there's actually a way for people to do this. And the city of Portland is very friendly to alternative technologies and and sustainable and and efficient and biofueled and all that. And so it's a great place to use this kind of a test bed for okay, how do we write the code so people know what clearances and you know the basic stuff that the inspector can easily check um, and can we still make it do it yourself friendly and leave it pretty open ended so people can keep doing their own designs and the the thing there that's really not in the spirit of the way the building code is done is can we keep it so that the owner builder is actually responsible for their own choices 
and that they are allowed to build something that's more efficient but only drafts in the coldest four months of the winter, or they can they be allowed to build something that's much smaller and exhausts much hotter but is still technically allowed as a rocket mass heater, you know, can, can we make the qualifications broad enough to still allow people to do all of the different things that people like to do when they read that book? Well, and <clears throat> wouldn't it be, I mean, I, it seems like they could do something where it's like an inspection would be 75 bucks, they drive up, you fire the thing up, they watch it for 10 minutes, and it's like, yeah, now it's burning totally clean, and it looks like, you know, but I, I think in a, um, uh, on a bigger scale, I mean, you know, granted, you guys are experiencing a lot of pain because you are blazing the trail, and that's just going to happen. Innovation comes at this price. We hope to and, God people are going to come and, and uh, try to learn this stuff from us and that that's going to be our payback. We, we are not going to be out there building stoves for people even once it's in building code. Um, we teach. We teach hands-on skills. And so we, we're hoping to set up a professional's training course so we can get some licensed contractors trained up in as much as we know and and give them the experience of working on half a dozen or a dozen different stoves and seeing what works and what doesn't and doing some test beds where we do some obvious mistakes that aren't obvious until after you've done them once. Well, I, I think that there are some goals that government needs to be involved in. One is is that it's important that you know pollution is kept to a minimum. And and so um, they they should be looking out for this. That's and, I think that's important, and it's it's a, it's an awesome thing. That's the thing. And, is that right now, the building code only cares about the occupants inside the house. It says nothing at all about what's being spewed out of the house into the surrounding neighborhood, aside from occasionally things that are real public health issues like sewage. But in some areas, the the smog and and burn ban kind of stuff is becoming a real public health issue. Right. But I, I, you know, and I also think that there's there's other issues that you know the government should be concerned about for like the entire nation as a whole, energy consumption as a whole, things like that. And I think that this is where the rocket mass heater has a has a massive role. And um, and for example, when we talk about sustainability, I'm I'm I can't think of anything that's more sustainable than a rocket mass heater. Not only is it the most efficient and the and the and probably the cheapest kind of <clears throat> heater that you can build yourself, but you guys are currently heating your home with nothing more than dead branches that are falling off the trees in your yard. Yeah. I mean we got and, we live on a shared property which is just under two acres and we do, I mean, we get wood chip delivered, and occasionally they deliver log grounds mixed in with the wood chip from the, the tree pruners, but we haven't bought firewood in the four years that we've been here. Right. Now, with two acres, you probably aren't even using all the wood, all the dead branches. No, the landlady is complaining about it because the stack near the driveway is too big. Yeah. So, um, but I would imagine that on a typical lot, on a typical urban lot where, you know, I don't know, it's like, what, a quarter of an acre, less than a quarter of an acre, but it's, you know, uh, with a backyard and you've got, like, eight or nine trees on your whole place, that um, the, the prunings alone could be enough to provide all of your heat for the winter. Yeah, for sure. I mean, we, we burn a lot of suckers off of the orchard trees, um, dead limbs off of the fir. We've got some, some mature um, second-growth fir, Douglas fir. That, that drops 
pretty big so, ranches from time to time. We have um, some trees that were taken out as invasive species or, or um, just fell down at the end of their natural life. Yeah, we've got, so, got more wood here than we can burn. Some people use electric heat, which is going to be that there's going to be uh, coal and nuclear and hydro and uh, oil and uh, diesel and, and, and these other kinds of things to generate the electricity, which then has to travel a very long ways to get to you in order to be able to run the heater in your house. And then before anybody starts saying how hydro is so awesome, um, hydro has reduced the number of salmon running in our rivers and streams by a factor of 20. And there is silt building up behind the dams, and now it's going to be this massive expense to dig the silt out in order for the dams to keep functioning. So it's turning out that large-scale hydro is turning out to be a bit of an ecological disaster. Well, and the thing that I try to keep in mind is a lot of our current power generating was put in place because of this marvelous resource that we discovered a few hundred years ago is these fossil fuels. We've got coal, we've got oil, we've got natural gas, and the cheapness of those fuel sources has been subsidizing things like the concrete used to produce the dams, um, the power equipment that you'd need to dredge it out. And so as those things get more expensive, the cost of maintaining that infrastructure also gets more expensive. The other thing, as a, as a science teacher that I want to throw in there, is the, the thing that many people don't think about when they flip a switch is the power losses, not just in transmission, but in conversion. Anytime you convert from one form of energy to another, you lose a lot of that energy. Uh, right. In some cases, if it's super efficient, like a fuel cell, hydrogen fuel cell is one of the most efficient energy converters. They get up to about 87%. You only lose 15% of the potential energy when you convert the hydrogen into electricity. But a you know a really good gasoline combustion engine is going to be in the thirty to forty percent range. And so every time, like with a coal-fired plant you're, or a nuclear plant, you're producing heat, you're producing steam, you're running a generator that produces electricity, and that electricity is being transmitted and stepped up and down, and then it goes into your house, and that's converted back into heat going through a resistor. So you've just had a minimum of three transformations of that energy. So, so the key is is that when we're when we're um, doing electric heat 30% of that energy is actually reaching your house. When we when we're doing the electric heat, it's it's it seems clean to us, but there's actually a lot of pollution that's going on somewhere else. And um, yeah. well, I mean it's getting expensive. I mean frankly, most of the people we deal with, it's like can I afford to pay 100 200 dollars for my utility bill? I mean, the, the, the real cost of that energy is starting to be reflected in our bills. We're nowhere close to what it would cost to actually make it off of current solar with no fossil fuels. But we're getting closer, and it's getting spending. So some people are heating with uh, natural gas, which, you know, a limited resource. Um, plus, there's all that piping that has to go up to your house, the furnace itself, um, uh, things of that nature. Um, I mean, there's a, there's a massive in- infrastructure that goes on and getting it to you. Well, keep an eye on Ohio and see what the what the fractioning thing works out. I mean, they've been they're investigating it right now for earthquakes in Ohio. And whether your tap water catches on fire. <laughs> so then, uh, uh, and and then some people have oil. 
uh, um, that's delivered to their their house, and then they burn oil. I know um, people that spend more on oil in one winter than they would to build a rocket stove. Right. I, I think uh, that doesn't I, put I, it in respect. I know people who spend more than two grand on oil in winter. Yeah. Right. And and so um, I know that uh, I've I've in my youth I did oil at a couple of different houses, and uh, yeah, it was like anywhere from one thousand dollars to two thousand dollars a winter. To, to do the oil. Um, and so there's all these other forms of heat, but I don't think any of them are nearly as sustainable as a rocket mass heater. Now, if you if you want to compare to the masonry heater, we're, we're getting into the ballpark, but still rocket mass heater still wins in that one too. So my point is to tie it back to what we're talking about with the building codes is, is that it's supposed to be the government supposed to be looking out for us collectively, uh, maybe looking out for us a little bit individually and looking out for us um, as a nation as well as like, you know, a state and a county and a city. Just to, and so, just to put, um, put in about like how building codes actually work, um, we've been working with a very friendly city committee that, that helps um, proponents of sustainable technologies that aren't currently covered by the building code to put them through and it's a dialogue process where they go back and forth it's a very reasonable fee and it almost guarantees you success in, in being able to then make a presentation to the legal appeals board that would get that approved as an alternative technology um, the building code as I see it as I read it is about about half of the building code is this really marvelous compendium of all of the things that we've learned over centuries of building things for people to live in and work in and use. It it's a it shows what works and what doesn't. It's it reminds you about all those stupid mistakes that people have made before that killed a lot of people and we shouldn't do that again. The other half of it is the sort of evolutionary artifact <coughs> of the fact that only someone who is going to get some benefit from their product being approved by the building code has the money to put in to getting something put in that wasn't already there. And so you have things like, uh, I'm not going to name the brand, but the strong ties that, that or hurricane hangers to hold a roof on, um, those got into the building code partly because there was some hurricanes, but partly because the company that makes them benefits quite a lot from that technology being required, even though there are plenty of parts of the country where people know how to put enough nails in to hold a roof on. Um, another, well, our process with the building code, we've had, probably we've gone through a half a dozen drafts, plus review with the other researchers, plus review with other people who know the building code from, from outside of the rocket stove community. Uh, it's been a year and a half, almost two years, that we've been working on this process of trying to get uh, things put in the building code. And we're not a manufacturer. We're not a contractor. We stand to see very little gain from this. And we don't have five grand to put down on, on an EPA-approved independent lab test. And so the... The majority of the new technologies that make it into the building code are making somebody money. Um, so that's, it's kind of an interesting thing to look at it and try to guess when you're looking at the building code, is that there because a concrete lobbyist made sure that somebody had enough money to test it? Or is that there because 
that really is the safest and best way we know how to do that. Mm-hmm. Or, or more accurately, is it there because that's what's good for us? What you know, the government's doing their job looking out for us, or is it there because somebody somewhere was going to make more money? Yeah. Well, and, and the thing is, if through you... through law being passed, as opposed to like they have a superior product and they're competing on the open market fairly. Yeah. Well, and if you look at like um, like the earth and masonry thing, in parts of the world is grandfathered in because it was a known local technology. And in parts of the world, they really had to fight to get it into the code. Um, the Adobe code finally dropped the requirement to include concrete because it doesn't actually improve the durability of the masonry. If you use it wrong, it can decrease the durability. Certainly, if you put a concrete stucco on an Adobe or Cobb building, the wall falls down. Um, and that, that those Adobe walls without concrete will last for centuries. Um, so if you try to, you're trying to get that approved, but nobody's going to make money off of selling dirt. And so if you were trying to get stick frame approved, say, with the, the, the little um, crappy 18th growth lumber that, that is most of what's going out as two-by-fours right now, uh, it would not pass. I mean, this, this, this material wouldn't make the standards that, that they apply to new materials, but everybody is used to it and knows it, and there's no way you're going to tell people you can't build a house out of wood. And so, anyway, it's just, it's interesting trying to get something in the building code because it's a good idea if nobody's going to make a lot of money off of it. Um, and we're very lucky to be living in a city that's as sympathetic and cooperative as ours is. And there's certainly plenty of places where they're short-staffed and they don't really want to deal with it if it's something they're going to have to think real hard about or, you know, especially with the solid fuel combustion device. That makes people real nervous if they don't understand what you're talking about. It goes upside down and sideways. Well, I'm glad you guys are blazing that trail down there. <clears throat> and it sounds like you're really close to getting everything all wrapped up, in which case then a city like Missoula would probably be more likely to um, also be okay with it, like you know, because they would just copy and paste whatever it is that you guys came up with. It makes and, me really nervous, frankly, because I'm not sure I know what the weather conditions in Omaha would say about how to build a rocket stove. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, once oh, we once we got when, once we've run the experiment in Portland and we've seen it work, then it's probably going to be way easier to to have it happen. Right, right. And so um, the point I was trying to make a little bit earlier was that um, uh, I agree that government. I mean, government has a function, and and uh, and I like the idea of it being there. Of course, you know. It's also abused, and I don't like the abuse, of course. Um, um, but in this particular case, I mean, by by um, permitting it or even encouraging it, hell, giving people a, a tax uh, incentive to build rocket mass heaters, you know, I think it would be great if, like, in the next uh, five years, if 30% of all homes had a rocket mass heater in them, and then um, I, I would like to think that we would see a big reduction in overall national pollution and, at the same time, a big reduction in energy consumption. And I think if we had a big reduction in overall energy consumption, that that would make us um, a lot more flexible in what, we, what our options are for a variety of other things. It just seems like it would be... Um, uh, a, a strategically advantageous thing for us as a nation, and therefore, I think that's one way that the government could be driven to say, you know what, we're going to fast track 
this stuff. So when it comes to building codes and stuff like that, we're going to not only fast track it, we're going to uh, put money into endorsing it to try and help it become a reality. I mean, I keep hearing about these other projects. I mean, I don't pay much attention to the news or much attention to politics or anything like that, but but my impression is, is that they're putting tons of money into this stuff where it's like maybe we'll get like a a three percent return or a four percent return, and it just seems to me like pushing behind a rocket mass heater is something that's going to have a huge bang for the buck. And it's like most of the work's already done because the stuff they're putting their work, their, the, you know, putting their shoulders behind is is the research. Right. And while while it'd be great to have the research, you know what? Most of the research is already done in the rocket mass eater world, and it's like you know, but but it's like now it's like up to us to be able to. To, to fight, well, by us, I mean really you, <laughs> to to push it, to get it out there so that well, way the you can do this, the work. What part of this is that the, okay, there's an initiative right now for energy efficiency in homes and home heating and all of that, but the folks that are dominating the conversation in the in that are people with enough money to send a lobbyist to Washington to go talk to a bunch of senators who are sitting in their estates and, you know, they don't heat with wood. They maybe start a fire in their fireplace that doesn't actually do anything. Um, but they don't know about it. I mean, reality is right. that they they don't know. Nobody's told them. Yeah, the neat thing about this, though, is that um, it doesn't, really take the government to start making that difference. Um, one of the things that's happened with Cobb building is a number of counties where people really liked it. It was working really well, and people, a lot of people built off-the-grid, unpermitted buildings. Um, you know, if the county finally finds out, they say, you should have had a permit. We're going to require you to take that down. They said, well, you're welcome to, uh, you know, went back and forth. Finally, they said, well, okay. Uh, we will take it down. We will pay for the bulldozer as long as you send your inspector out to watch what happens as we take it down. Um, and they broke the bulldozer, and Cobb is now permitted in that county in California. Um, this is this is something where the immediate benefit is, yeah, I mean, you're saving the planet and you're making less pollution and you might be helping reduce the United States' dependency on scary, dangerous ways of getting fuel. Um, but you're also cutting your heating bill down to a fraction of what it otherwise was. And that's right. something where an individual person who chooses to do that, um, the difference they're making is first and foremost to themselves. And so if it's, you know, if it's working for people and they're doing it and they're finding whatever exemption they can or feeding the building inspector brownies or whatever, <clears throat> you know, we've had, a number of incidents now where somebody did get a building inspector called in on them, and when they had a functional rocket stove that they were using, and the building inspector comes in and says, where's the wood stove, or sits on the bench and over coffee for an hour or two, um, if the inspectors like what they see, and most of them know what they're looking at as far as what's, what's generally a good idea for building and what's not, like... You know, they tend to be people with a fair amount of experience in what people can build and what people can't build. And they know a good idea when they see it. And so if you treat them like somebody that, hey, you know how the city works and I don't, or you know how the county works and I don't, you know, here's what we got. Um, it 
it tends to work out on the local level. You do occasionally get a situation where somebody just requires you to take it out. Um, and I would, for that reason, I want to blaze this path so people can get a permit and not risk that situation. Um, but even if you only got to run it for a couple of years, you'd be paying for itself already. Right. I, and I, I, I mean, the, the amount of money that's saved or the amount of, <clears throat> the amount of energy that's just generally saved by this is mind boggling. Stunning, um, and and the fact that uh, that it, that the exhaust is so much cleaner than the smoke coming out of a conventional wood stove, even a really efficient wood stove, is again mind-boggling. And and uh, I, I'm just really you know it just seems like there should be a lot of uh, help, like like you would think that um, you know there'd be 500 government people um, beating a path to your door. To like hold a ruler up to your rocket mass heater in your home to say how can we duplicate this and get um, you know 10 million of these installed in the next year, um, you know that kind of thing because we're gonna you know basically in a way this is going to solve many of the problems that the government is currently wrestling with, but you know they're they're not currently aware of it now. Well, I want to I want to move away from we have some- talking about government stuff for a bit. And I want to, I want to, um, cause now we're, we're at damn near two hours for this podcast. And I want to, I've got a list of things I want us to pop through now. Right. If that's okay with you guys. One thing is that you keep mentioning a rocket stove. Mm. And I think that there's a, a distinct difference between a rocket stove and a rocket mass heater. Good point. Um, we tend to use the word rocket stove kind of loosely. Um, <coughs> Part of what is going on is the the website that sells the Rocket Mass Heater book is called rocketstoves.com. And a lot of the researchers are used to talking about rocket stoves because that's where it came out of. The general term rocket stoves, and I believe this type of rocket stoves was on NPR recently, so the thing that a lot of people are likely to have heard of, um, is basically a very simple version of a, of a clean-burning combustion device. It's, a, it's an insulated chimney with a hole in the side that you put wood in. Um, it, if, you can, you know, if you've ever started a barbecue with a coffee can full of coals instead of trying to just put a pile up and light a fire, you got the idea. Um, you're basically creating something that, that contains the heat and the smoke and helps the smoke burn more completely and lets you get the heat out of the fire where you want it. Um, the Original rocket stoves were, like I was saying before, developed for mostly for third world cooking. They make a really great camp stove. Um, and there are people working on variations on them that have like <coughs> special pot sleeves and interfaces to uh, some kind of thing where you could actually plumb, plumb the exhaust out of a building. Um, but the basic idea is, is that you are using very small amounts of wood to efficiently heat uh, something like a pot of soup or tea or or cooking chili or whatever. Now, the way I've told the story about how it was invented, <clears throat> um, you know, let me let me tell the story and then you can tell me how my story is wrong. <laughs> and and so it goes it goes like this. And so I, I believe it was Ianto Evans. He's um, uh, a young fella, he's in Africa and he d- sees these people they're cooking inside their homes 
and they don't use a chimney, and the home just fills up with smoke, and the smoke pours out the doorway, and people have all kinds of eye problems and lung problems and stuff like that. So he comes back, and he says, looky here, I brought like a 100 um, solar ovens. You guys can cook with this, and you won't have all the smoke problems. And then he goes away, and he comes back a few months later, and all the all of the uh, solar ovens are gone, and uh, everybody has really shiny jewelry. Um <laughs> And then, uh, so basically, it did not fit culturally. Their, their culture just couldn't accept. I mean, they, they saw how it worked, and they learned about it, and they just didn't like it. It just didn't work for them. So they went back to the, Same way the smoky way. So then he comes up with this design where um, the, the heat is focused and concentrated on heating the food rather than the heat going every which way, and only 5% of the heat actually gets to the food. So, um, And then on top of that, it reburns the smoke, and it does all these other... And so basically, the and the thing that seems to have really been the big sale for them was that the women who would go and get the wood, suddenly they, did, they only had to get 10 times... They got 10 times less wood, 10 to 20 times less wood to do the cooking. And so this was like... Awesome! Yeah, it's and huge. So, and so now they're, the women are like, "This is you're, you're going to get me one of these. These are awesome. I want one." And so it was a huge hit. And and on on top of that, not only is it already burning ten to twenty times less wood to cook to, to heat the water, but um, but on top of that, um, it's it's like they're, the inside of their home, the the air is clear. There's no smoke because it's it's burned the smoke along the way. And uh, so that's the that's the rocket stove. Uh, the uh, the rocket stove is for uh, cooking food. Ernie's, and, Ernie's and saying that also that story he heard it around the Lorena stove, which is another um, stove that Yanto worked on. Um, the folks at Aprovecho would probably tell you a story <clears throat> about how their doctor, whoever it was, invented the the rocket stove in a, probably a fairly similar way in terms of looking at third world cooking. And they've made kits and lab tested them in their own private labs that, you know, they send all over the world so you can buy one made out of stamped sheet metal. I tend to send people toward a website out of India that is promoting something they call the Good Stove, which is a local variation made with adobe brick um, that's working really well for some of the villagers in India. Again, it's working well because it became popular with the women who do most of the cooking, and it's actually a two-burner stove that's more suited to what they tend to cook. Um, but if you go back in time and you look at, like, the Plains Indians had a fox stove that's the exact same configuration. You make it by digging down into a fox or badger hole and putting the dirt that you dig out around it to make a little stack. makes an extremely clean burning fire. The advantage for them is that if you don't have smoke, nobody knows where your camp is, and you can hide it again when you're moving on. Um, there's the jug stoves in Africa, again, where it's, it's dug out the side of a, a hill or termite mound, and you dig a little, basically a little fireplace with a, a long, big chimney, and you build a little fire of sticks, and you set your teapot on top of the chimney. Um, so this, the idea of an insulated chimney that you cook on top of instead of just an open fire um, has been around the world a few times, and it's questionable whether any modern researcher discovered it or invented it. Um, but the rocket stoves that people have been promoting on the Internet, they'll often give credit to a particular white guy who brought that idea back a particular time. Ah, okay. Well, I, I like that story even better. Yeah. But it, and then, of course, this technology is what went into the core 
of the rocket mass heater. Yeah, I mean, but you could say it's basically the technology of the chimney. It's, True. It's just a that, it's a sophisticated chimney that actually pays attention to everything we've learned about chimneys for industrial smokestacks and, you know, um, heated factory stacks and primitive, meaning the first choice given available materials, technologies that have been around the world for millennia. So, um, yeah. So so rocket stoves on the internet tends to describe anything that uses that principle of making the heat go up and then putting what you want to get hot above that insulated chimney that's containing the heat. Right. Um, rocket mass heaters is a specific application of that internal chimney sideways or, or downdraft draw um, that's intended for providing comfortable heat for people who are living in their homes on a regular basis. Right. Okay, moving right along. Um, I've got on my list that you wanted to talk about other wood-burning things, and um, maybe maybe we can save that for another podcast. I actually that I kind of did that a little bit just now with the history of, of things that are like rocket stoves. Um, okay. The only other things I'd mention, if you don't live in your house, um, then you might be looking at something that's a more of a quick heat solution rather than something where you have to warm up a big thermal mess for once a week or short weekends in a ski cabin and that kind of thing. So those are where you'd be looking at radiant heat devices or fireplaces rather than a than mass heater. Mass heater's good if you're in your home multiple days a week. Okay. Um, I've got a note on here about uh, more efficient than a 75% efficient wood stove, which we've kind of talked about a little bit here and there. And um, I want to give a quick summary so I can check it off of my list to make sure it's complete. Um, I think the first thing to do is to start off with the fact that the government, when, when regulating this stuff, the government allows 16% of the heat to go up the chimney because you've got to have heat to carry the smoke out, whereas a rocket mass heater does not need to have heat to carry the smoke out because, well, it's just working a totally different way. And and so, um, but when they say it's 75% efficient, what they mean to say is that that does not count the heat that's needed to carry the smoke out of the chimney, this 16%. So it turns out that when they say 75%, that's, that's actually 64%. So the most efficient conventional wood stove right now is actually 64%. And on top of that, that that value, that value of 64% is um, the most efficient that they were able to get in tests run by experts in a laboratory. That that is not the complete burn. You actually you actually said something in there that should like send up all kind of flags and signals and stop signs. Smoke. They're getting smoke. If they're getting right. smoke, they're not burning the fuel. Well, and they could say that it's, you know, really efficient. And it is it is true. When you get one of those conventional wood stoves, the new ones, that are 75% efficient, and you're, you're doing it at the hottest possible burn, they do put out no smoke. There's no smoke coming out. Yeah. But you look there's at the a top. whole they bunch are, of heat coming out. There is a whole bunch of heat coming out, and, and there's no smoke. Is that, so, I mean, is that with the, um, the ceramic... Um, 
I don't what know. What do you call it? I thing that has to be replaced every five years, or is that a stove that it's? <laughs> I. That, I mean, that's a big question. Is if the only reason it's smoke free is you got a sponge in there soaking up smoke that until you, that after it's full, it's going to smoke. Yeah. Well, so that's the almost point as I'm good a gimmick as we've got. Is that okay? So we're at sixty-four percent, but it's uh, so I want to I want to finish my thing here, and then you can sure. poke holes at the thing. And so 60, we're at 64%, but then that's in a laboratory run by experts who know how to really make a, uh, get the most efficiency out of it. I mean, they, they can watch the meters and then they can tinker with it to get to the point that it's like at 64%. Because most of the time, they're probably not doing better than 50%. And that's, now, that's with a full burn. And that, well, my understanding is, is, is it, is it with the full burn? I thought it was with, just at one point, like that's not counting the beginning no. and the end. It's like by, by full burn, I mean you're actually burning the wood with open flame. And what every person I've ever talked to who's tried to heat a home in a cold area with a wood stove ends up trying to play with is how do you damp it down far enough that you've still got fire in the morning so your house isn't freezing when you wake up. And and that we met, we touched on this, and this is where I was going. Okay. Is that um, these guys in this laboratory are the are the pros? They really know how to make one of these babies sing. And then you take your average guy uh, who is running, who owns a wood stove, and thinks he's a genius at running a wood stove. It turns out not really because he's not measuring all the output and stuff that these other people are doing. So he will do exactly what you're saying: is damp it down. Well, he's and he's being some- he's being there's efficiency and there's effectiveness. He is getting the best effectiveness he can out of the amount of wood he has to split. And frankly, if you're splitting four to six cords of wood, you're going to be paying attention to whether they're doing what you want them to do. Ernie's got True. something to say, but he's way outside the house. So, Oh, okay. Oh, he's saving money on matches. That's what he's being efficient about is how many times he has to go back into town and get another box of matches. <laughs> Um, well, on top yeah. of that, so, I mean, once the fire goes out, it gets cold. Yeah, and it gets cold and, fast. And that's not, you don't have that with the rocket mass heater. The rocket mass heater will hold heat for days. Yeah. And and so, even after the fire's gone out. So, these guys are um, generally operating uh, at an efficiency level that's much less than the efficiency than what the guys in the lab are able to get. And then on top of that, once they crank down that damper, the efficiency goes way down. Yep. They go down to like 5%. And then on top of that, you try and burn wet wood, it goes down even more. Um, if you learn nothing else from listening to us talk, don't burn wet wood. Thank you. <laughs> so um, the key is is that I, I go to these presentations or I go to wherever and I get these people saying, you know, my wood stove is 75% efficient. And so, therefore, when you make the claim that you can um, heat a home with ten times less wood, it's therefore unbelievable. Like, you are lying. I have not tried to heat a home with a rocket stove compared to their particular wood stove. Um, I wouldn't expect to see the ten times better efficiency off of a modern wood stove. I'm, I'm guessing that those particular examples were a much older box stove that somebody was using. But um, we did have somebody who had a modern insert or a less than five-year-old soapstone stove. He's, he actually had us come back twice to help him do another workshop when he had to leave that first home. Um, but yeah, I mean, his 11-year-old is hauling in 
bundles of wood as big as the kid is to feed this super efficient soapstone stove that they're trying to use to heat a two-story, two-and-a-half-story home. Okay. Um, and they put a rocket mass heater in the attached garage, um, and on maybe a third as much of that wood, the kid would t- take two or three loads of that. So it's, you know... But they're heating yeah. a bigger space they're heating, they're heating the they're garage heating and the house. garage and it was the first time that that upstairs bedroom off the garage had been warm because the heat was actually going from the the garage through the cathedral ceiling up and, and heating yeah. up some of the upstairs bedrooms in the the house with the efficient stove. The so, the important thing is the the point that I'm trying to make is is that if you if because I try I think the best way to understand it is by measuring the amount of heat that's going out of the house like out of the chimney versus out of the exhaust and um, a lot of people they it's like this is something that that they refuse to wrap their head around they refuse to even try to understand and they're stuck on my wood stove is seventy five percent efficient it says so right on the label. And it, and it's like uh, um, and there's no way that you can squeeze out so much more out of that. So I'm trying to. I just need to paint this picture, and I think I'm I'm done. I got it from 75% down to 5% or even less than 5%, and that gives you room for having an efficiency of 20 times better. Well, and it's and we're only talking about you know, like you take replace if you replace that that. Really efficient conventional wood stove with a really well done rocket mass heater. Maybe you won't see ten, but I'll bet you see at least five. Five times less wood. Well, there's the other thing with efficiency is as we started this podcast, we, what we were talking about is what are they measuring for efficiency? Okay, are they measuring how much heat is put into the house, retained in the house? Are they measuring how well it burns up all the wood. Are they measuring, um, you know, combustion efficiency, how well it, it burns up all the smoke? What are they measuring? No, you're right. There's different flavors of efficiency. Well, and there's also, this is something I'm not going to get into in too much depth here. We could probably do it. Um, we do it in every workshop we give, and we could probably also do it in a separate podcast. Um, most Modern homes are heated with um, forced air circulation of some kind, whether that's a fan over your wood stove or um, one of those, like, pumps or a, a furnace. Um, and most healthy homes, uh, somebody just gave me this figure, they recycle at least 30% of the home's air every hour. If you have less ventilation than that, your home is probably not healthy to live in. You're going to get things like mold problems. Um, that may that may that factor may change for places that are less damp than the Pacific Northwest, but that's that factor's pretty valid for Portland and Seattle. So, if you're heating with air, you're losing your heat, and if you're trying to store heat in air, air is the main ingredient in most forms of insulation. It stops the transfer of heat. Um, so, if you're trying to heat the air in your house and hold all that hot air in. Um, just, you know, imagine coming in off of your sled skiing, whatever, and you want your mom to warm you up and she's blowing on your hands instead of offering you, you know, a hot mug of something. Or It's um, just by putting some additional thermal mass in your house that you can efficiently heat up 
to a comfortable temperature, you've massively changed the dynamic of how much heat your house is losing. We get the rocket stove bench warmed up. We can have our nieces and nephews running in and out of the house, in and out of the house, trying to set up a tea party outside. Shut the doors again, and you know, less than five minutes later, the house is comfortable again because the heat is not stored in the air; it's stored in the masonry. Right. That's a, that's a huge efficiency factor for comfort, and that's what people who are damping down their fires are trying to achieve: is that experience of having warmth. Through the night. Through the night, having warmth in spite of whatever else you need to be doing that has you going in and out of the house. Right. Or, or uh, uh, having the, the, the fire burn out and then it gets cold. Yep. You and know, that, even I mean, if that's it is what, the middle of the day. That's what the soapstone stoves do. That's what a good fireplace chimney or bricks around for your stove can help you with. But right. Just the more I, thermal I, mass I, you, you got, the better you chance you got of, of staying warm. Uh, I think I think there's several topics that we can bring up in, the, in another podcast. Now, uh, I've got one last thing I want to talk about, and I know that I've in, in just since the, the the thing last weekend and the videos, I think I've had four or five different people say, "Can you come and build one of those at my house? How much do you charge?" Or um, can you come and teach a workshop? Or can you? And I've been telling them, you know, that's not really my thing. You need to talk to Ernie and Erica. And now since I've talked to you guys, you guys have made it clear to me you are not contractors. You do not go to somebody's house and um, build this for them. But what you do offer is that you will go to somebody's house and teach them to build it. Mm-hmm. And um, that, you know, if they want to have other students there too, that's that's great. And And this was kind of a shocker to me. I think you mentioned that you had, you had done this one time with like, was it 40 students at one we, thing? We we don't like to mention the one with 60 students because we don't feel like it was good. Uh, but Jeez. we have done very successful workshops with classes of 30 people, provided that they already knew each other and were, were not working their social dynamics out in the course of a weekend. Um, okay. So for some right. um college class or uh, this one was a naturalist skills program that was really highly functional socially. Okay. Um, if if people are able to form small groups and work together and have us circulate through the group because they already know each other, we can do pretty large numbers of people and still have it be a hands-on class. Um, right. For, for building a rocket mass heater in a typical smaller space, we because you know most people don't necessarily want to open their entire house to people with muddy feet. Um, right. We we usually would do a workshop with eight to. 15, 18 people. Um, right. A full workshop for us is 12 to 20 people, depending on the space. Right. So the one I was first, the one, my first taste of a rocket mass heater one, you guys were there as the instructors, and I believe we had eight students. I think that's right. And I think that's right. There were four people that already knew each other and another four so, um, uh, and I've got the video of that workshop up, condensed into 10 minutes. Um, on YouTube, um, but now I know that you guys have traveled all over, even into Canada, to go and do this. Um, so, what do you guys? All right. So, I want to know if it's okay if you guys will just blurt it out. How much do you guys charge to go and do a workshop for somebody? Um, we tend to look 
for a down payment, it can be in the form of a paid site visit or just a down payment to secure a future weekend for the workshop. Um, that tends to be $300, $800, depending on the time invested at that point. And then we look for an additional $1,000 out of the weekend that we're there for the workshop. So the total price would be, oh, plus, plus travel. So the total cost is going to be about Fifteen to eighteen hundred plus travel. Okay, and um, uh, and I know it's like a it's like a forty eight hour thing. I know that I showed up in the late afternoon and we started um, like at dusk because it was all we we spent the entire evening Friday night being seeing all kinds of fire demonstrations. Yeah, way and more we, fun in the dark. And and then um, on the following Saturday morning we got started. And, and by noon on Sunday, it was all done. Yep. And that, so, what was all done, I want to be real clear for folks that are thinking about how much work is it, is it going to be for them as an owner-builder to bring a workshop in. Um, prior to the workshop, the owner sources all the parts, um, gets some space cleared so that the workshop can mix some cob, things like that. And we, as a workshop... Um, I'll get our hands in the dirt. I'll know how to mix cob by the end of the weekend. I'll know how to put the ducks together and, you know, keep them from falling apart again before we get them. I'm having a hard time hearing you there, Erica. All right. Basically, when you're done with that weekend workshop, what's finished is the complicated technical proportional core of the mass heater. Um, what the owner-builder will then finish, unless they want to bring us or another um like a natural plasters contractor maybe in to finish it, is that then there would be another couple of inches of decorative plaster that would go on the outside of the stove once the core is dry. Um, I, I, yeah, I remember when we, the thing that we finished, it was still looked like... Still looks you know, like a, a square pile small, of mud. big pile of mud, yeah. Um, now that stove that we finished in the office gets used... Uh, four days a week, and it's a little bench that people sleep on that's very nicely plastered and really adds to the space. You know, and that, and that reminds me, um, I've now been to a lot of places, and I've seen a lot of rocket mass heaters. And um, uh, usually when I see them, they're not fired up. And... Um, I've been seeing a lot of them when they're fired up and they're smoking out of one end or the other, but I have never seen one of yours smoke out of one end or the other. So obviously there's some fine-tuning that some people understand better than others. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, you know, I, I, so basically what I'm trying to say is, is that when it, when it comes down to picking somebody to come out, I, I, I can't think of anybody that I would recommend other than you guys to come and do this kind of thing. And um, and I've you know I've met a lot of people that do this stuff. Um, well, and I do want to put in there the stoves that we've built that smoke you haven't seen because they've come out again. <laughs> Uh, right. I mean, so, and, and that's another thing, too, is I've seen you guys get something put together, and I've seen you tear it apart. Like, no, this is unacceptable. Mm-hmm. And then you rebuild it. And, and um, I do want to put in there, too, that if you – I don't know if you hung around that the day after the – I don't think it was your workshop. Um, 
Yeah, we have pulled things apart and put it back together the day after a workshop. Uh, in one case, somebody stepped on one of the ducts and squashed it. <laughs> and they don't tend to work real well when that happens. Um, but with a workshop of 8 to 12 people, you're actually focusing mostly on the people's educational process, and they're paying for the, the workshop. The site owner is getting some free help, but the, the people that we're helping are the, the students at that point. And so you'll, you'll notice if you're the site owner and we finish a workshop and then we're hanging around for another day and pulling things apart and putting them back together, it goes a heck of a lot faster that, <laughs> that second day when it's just us and a couple of, of people with, you know, young knees that are running around making a little extra cob for us. Um, it is, it is true that with a smaller crew you can sometimes move faster. Um, and so that's something to consider is that people sometimes choose to have us come in and just teach them and their two friends that they know how to use a shovel. Um, and they don't have a bunch of people coming in who are interested but may have lots of questions about projects that are a little different and slow things down a little bit as they're trying to get things exactly the way that they work in their heads and so on. Okay. Well, I know that the one that I took, I, I shelled out about 200 bucks, and... Um, uh, I know that the concept of the rocket mass heater was pretty much unheard of at that point. And so now I, my impression is, is everybody's wild for rocket mass heaters, or a lot of people are. Not enough, really, but a lot of people are. So filling a course should be a lot easier. Well, and you're doing and, your best to make that happen, too. Um, I've done a lot to help spread the word a bit. Yes, I have. And uh, um, I, I guess my, the point I'm trying to get at is, is like, okay, somebody shells out, uh, two grand to cover the cost of you guys plus your travel or whatever. I'm just making up a number here. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, you know, ten students and you pretty much get a rocket mass heater for the cost of materials. You know, I, I think that works, works out pretty good. I thought that paying $200 for the class was well worth it. I, I, uh, it, it was one of the best things that ever happened to me. Um, so, um, to find you, uh, I know that you guys have a website at uh, ErnieAndErica.info. Is that right? That's correct. Okay. Uh, is your email address stuff there? Yep. Um, I know you. And I'll put out guys- another email that people can reach me at. That's easier to say over the internet. Erica E R I C A Lady L A D Y at Gmail dot com. It's a quick way to reach us. Okay, and I know that um, out at the uh, out at permies.com, the forums at permies.com, there's the alternative energy forum, mm-hmm. and I know you guys are both there regularly and uh, answering questions all the time. Um, yep. What if somebody, you know, I know that I get emails from people all the time that say. Uh, asking me questions, and I direct them to the forums, and, and then people say, oh, but I don't like to talk in the forums. And I tell them, oh, no problem then. I'm happy to answer your question over email as a consultant. Go ahead and put 120 bucks into my PayPal account, and I'll answer your question. Of course, you could ask the same question over in the forums, and I'll answer you for free. <laughs> but um, if you don't like forums, I understand. I'm glad to take your 120 bucks. Yep. I, do you guys do something like that, too? Yeah. Yeah, we tend to go about 180 for an hour of personal phone consulting, and that includes you send us ahead of time as much information as you can about your site so that we're not um, 
getting confused about what you mean by which side is north and so on. Um, if you need more than an hour, um, the price drops down to about 80 bucks an hour. Um, and that's that's on the phone or email, your choice. Okay. All right. So, uh, any, any, I, I mean, I think there's a, a ton of little bits and bobs that we can add to what we've already said. And we're going to have to do another podcast to talk about more stuff. Um, because if nothing else, we've got to talk about Rumford's. Um, I want to talk about more of the fire science. I want to talk about uh, uh, flow dynamic stuff, um, and and you know there's there's just tons. I mean, the, also, the stuff that's being done in labs. I know there's work being done in laboratories right now with rocket mass heaters. Um, there's there's just so much more to talk about, um, and and you know this is we, we've got to cut we've got to have a cutoff at some point. But is there anything else that you just gotta squeeze into this one? Well. I would say the other thing to squeeze in, and Erica brought this up the other day as we were talking, um, a rocket mass heater is, is a cheap stove in a way. You know, people, people think of it as, as cheap because they don't, it, they really don't have to spend a whole lot of money on it, but it's a very sophisticated device. Okay? It's, it's not. Um, let me let me hand this to Erica. She's now raising her hand. <laughs> you know, you know the story about the guy that got laid off from the. I think it was a public utility, and uh, then their machinery breaks down, and they tell him, "Is he willing to come back in as a consultant and fix the problem?" And he says, "Yeah, but it's going to cost you a hundred grand." And they say, well, if you don't get in here in the next 24 hours, we're going to have a citywide blackout. We need you. Um, I guess we're writing the check. So he shows up, and uh, he goes into the back room, and he thumps something twice with a hammer, and he sticks an extra nut on the bolt, and the whole thing's working again. Right? Um, right. And they say, you're going to charge us 100000 bucks for what you did with a hammer and a nut? That's a three cent part and he said okay I'll, I'll write the invoice out for a hundred thousand dollars and three cents okay I'm with you so yeah it's not the parts it's knowing where to put them <laughs> right right so yeah it's it can be extremely cheap in parts and you can feel good about it because you're not um, there's not a lot of energy invested in the parts you're using there's not a lot of hidden environmental costs to building one. Um, but you do want to respect that if you are trying to get one built for you, you're asking for someone else to put in a pretty steep learning curve and a lot of time to make sure that what they put in for you is going to be reliable and meet needs that you want met without knowing how it works. My analysis is that if a person were to go out, if they were, a person were trying to build this without a book, they're, they might be able to get something running. They have a 10% chance of getting something that just barely works. If that they go out and they get a depends get on the, the book, yep. true, it depends on the person. If they go out and they get the book, then I, I think that they're going to have a 90% chance of success and they're going to have a 15% chance of something that's going to work really good. Um, and um, and I think that uh, if yeah. they yeah within the first uh, three tries I would say because because you're gonna if you tweak anything out of the book then it doesn't work but you got the book you can figure out what you did different and you can fix it 
There you go. And now I think if they take a workshop, then the chance of their success, of building one successfully is 99%. And the, the odds that they're going to get one that really sings for them is about 50%. And then if they actually have you guys there, then I think that the, the odds of it really singing for them are like about 98%. Yeah, um, I mean, Ernie can make these things jump up and do tricks. and. Well, and which is, you know, another thing for another podcast is heating water. Yep. And I know that that's one that you should never do by yourself. No. Even if you've read the book frontwards and backwards. You can heat water in a tea kettle or pot on top of the barrel. Right. Anybody but can then, do that in an open but container. Then something but if for you want pipes or closed house. containers, you really want to know what you're doing. If you don't have a boilermaker on your team, then you need somebody that's done it before. It, and my understanding is is that you you um, you're playing with something that could make that could blow up your entire house. Yeah, it's a rocket and, stove, um, not a pipe bomb stove. That's important. Right, and I know that there's an awesome video on YouTube from MythBusters where they took a took a conventional water heater, and then they they plugged the emergency overflow, and then they rigged it up so that it would just heat and not be like they 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 shorted the uh, the thermostat so it would only be on. And um, it was it was such an awesome video. It was the biggest explosion they've ever had on the show. <laughs> I believe and it. And they they built it. They like built a house around it to code. And um, uh, after it exploded, they waited inside for a few seconds, and they went outside to go look at it. And they're like, "Whoa, that totally wiped out the house." And then while they're standing there looking at it, clang! The the water heater finally fell from the sky and hit the ground. Yeah. It was airborne that whole time that yeah. they're out there, like wandering around, looking at, it, like, whoa. Yeah. No, Ernie was saying it was the the water heater was almost 200 feet up in the air on that one. Yeah. And that yeah. the the safety valve and the thermostat are two things that do-it-yourselfers often don't actually put in their first dr- design draft drawing, which is why it, we really don't like um, encouraging people on those projects because right. the the that's one of those things where um, it's really easy to, to hurt somebody or kill somebody if you if you miss one of those basic safety features, and they're, they're right. not always now, obvious to a novice. I think that in the space of the rocket mass heater, there's really not too much that can go wrong. I mean, it's possible. I mean, if it starts to smoke back, people are going to just not use it. You know, it's just too smoky. Mm-hmm. And so they've, if they've built it wrong and it smokes back, they're just not going to not use it. Well, and it's, so, the fire is contained within masonry. The exhaust is contained within masonry. You can um, you can make a lot of mistakes on a rocket mass heater that the the result will be it doesn't work. It's not going to explode on you. Right. So I think I think you know with a rocket mass heater you're safe. Heating the water, stay away from that unless you know you guys are there. Um, and uh, uh, um, but anyway, I, th- I think that the key is is to take is, is definitely get the book. Um, better to take the take a course, and of course the best is to um, have you guys come out. Yeah. Um, all right. So uh, we good? I think so. Thanks so much for for making this happen. Oh hey, it's my pleasure. This is this is awesome stuff for me. Um, and congratulations on um, my longest podcast ever, two hours and thirty four minutes. <laughs> well, you know, <laughs> we had to give you something to listen to. <laughs> All congratulations on your portable rocket stove. 
excuse me, it's a it's a rocket mass heater. Okay, your portable <laughs> rocket mass heater. <laughs> Which is awesome. Go ahead, say it, Ernie. It's just awesome. Now that almost <laughs> I'm gonna sincere. ask you to do it sincerely. <laughs> okay. It is awesome. My awesome portable rocket mass heater. Praise me! <laughs> okay. Well done, my son. So, if you like this sort of thing, come on out to the forums at permies.com, where we talk about rocket mass heaters, homesteading, and permaculture all the time. <laughs>